rocking with the most awesome The Carl Nelson Show. Habari Ghani, Wake Up Squad, and thanks for starting your the second day of Kwanzaa, Kuji Jagalia, self-determination with us. Later, Pan-African scholar and reparationist, Dr. David Horn will take over our classroom. Dr. Horn will discuss if the time is right to form our own black political party. Dr. Horn will also examine why young people are not infused with the potential presidential candidates. Before we hear from Dr. Horn, math guru Akil Parker will explain how to operationalize the Nguzu Saba the seven Kwanzaa symbols by using math in the black community. But to get us started this morning, international journalist Brother Obi is here. Hotep, good morning, Brother Obi. Uh, hey, Africa, how you doing? We're doing excellent, Brother. How about yourself? I'm fine. Um, any day we can wake up and contribute to our people's struggle, that's a good day for us. Yeah, I, I like how you put it, can contribute to the struggle. Because, you know, many people don't know we're in a struggle. They think we've made it. So I'm glad that you uh, mm-hmm. you said that's off the bat. Yes, well, you know, that's one of the uh, pleasures of um, serving on the front line. Yes, sir. Reminding people that struggle never ends. Um, when you win your liberation, it's harder to maintain it. As many of our people can attest to Zimbabwe has learned it's harder to remain liberated, Eritrea, Namibia, and so many. And um, it, it continues and it never ends. It's just um, different dynamics change. And even when you're fighting for liberation, certain tactics that you're disposing, um, Juan Interre reminded us in the 1950s, the courts was the main weapon in the uh, and then in the 60s, it became demonstrations and protests. And then it became urban rebellions. And then um, it became the, the ballot. So regardless of the medium, regardless of the platform, um, our pursuit to attain liberation and human dignity, and then the maintenance of it, when we attain it, we'll always be struggling. Well said. And, and each and every single one of us has a role to play in that uh, liberation struggle. You know, and that's what each and every one of us should be striving for. Everybody's got a different part to play in, in, this, in these scenes that you know so much about, because that's what you do. You put on plays, and now you've got this play, the Kiswahili Explosion. I see that Brother Richard has joined us. So if you can uh, explain to us, what is the Kiswahili Explosion all about? Well, um, before that, um, one of the things about the Mass Emphasis Children Christian Theater Company is we have two objectives. The first one is to recruit children by engaging their families into the process. You can join as early as five years old, 18 years old is the cutoff age. And um, we teach our history through our children, not to our children. Because once you stimulate the mind and intellect of the child, it eventually spreads to, to the family. And we also look to collaborate with different organized formations, vehicles, and institutions working for towards the liberation and upliftment of our people. So um, we've been invited by the Black Defense Collective in Philadelphia to uh, showcase this production tonight, which is a virtual experience. 
so people can watch it. That's what you want to encourage. And um, I wanted to bring introduce um, the WL family, um, who I consider an extension of my family. I've been with so much to our brother Richard in the ethics right now in Philadelphia. So brother Richard talked about the different collectives. Of course, we'll get into the production and it's important. Right, and when you get a chance, see if you can get closer to that phone because we're, we're getting an echo back up. Yeah, yeah, so get, yeah. It's, it's still kind of muffled, but uh, you can check on that. Let's let's talk to Brother Richard while you check on that phone. Brother Richard, good morning. Good morning. Uh, can you tell us your role in, in this, you know, th th this Kiswahili explosion with Brother Obi? What role do you play in this? Well, our organization, um, Black Docents Collective, and, and let me say, um, I'm appreciative of Brother, Brother Obi and us working collectively together in order to put on our Kwanzaa program. Um, Black Docent Collective is a group of individuals, of tour, tour guides. Um, primarily, docents are tour guides for museums. And at Black Docents Collective, during the pandemic, we came together because a lot of us worked, um, volunteered particularly, at the African-American Museum in Philadelphia. And, and because we couldn't, you know, actually go out, um, you know, because of COVID, we decided that it was important to continue to do the work that we're doing, which is to um, portray the history of Black Philadelphia, particularly um, using, you know, our historical narrative. And, and out of that, we decided one of the programs we would do is a Kwanzaa program every year. Um, this is our third Kwanzaa program. And every year we decide a principle of the seven principles, and we decided to use um, Kujichakalia, self-determination. And then we also, in our just dialogue and discussion, we wanted to, well, what do we want to focus on? And we decided we wanted to focus on children. And as we were looking around for different, you know, um, themes or people to work with in order to focus on children, we wanted to deal with children, you know, in various ways. And that's being uh, already familiar with Brother Obi and what he was doing with the theater group. Um, we presented his his um, play to the to the body, um, and they reviewed it. And we decided we wanted to focus on um, children. Um, you know, his his play would center um, very well in what we wanted to do and accentuate. And we also brought in uh, someone who was going to present from the um, Philadelphia perspective of how children are, are, how we are the public welfare system. How many of our African children um, in globally are, ex you know, not really um, brought in to our community and left out and how we can be used self-determination as we can use the principle um, in demonstrating how we can be able to be helpful and, and being making people aware and also what we can do. And Brother Obi's um, presentation um, plays, um, fit it re very well. And we reached out to him. He was um, very open and allowing to us to be working collaboratively together, um, another one of those principles, and um, here we are today. All right. Uh, Brother Obi, you picked uh, the Kiswahili explosion, and uh, why this particular play? 
Well, because because um, of Kwanzaa. And uh, can you hear me better now? Is the phone situation resolved? Yeah, it's a little better, but go ahead. Oh, okay, so, yeah, so, um, obviously, Kiswahili is the language of the people of Tanzania, the people in Kenya, the people in Uganda, the people in Rwanda. They're now speaking it in Azania, South Africa. And so, um, in the 1970s, we adopted that language as a result of the Black Power and the Black Arts Movement. And from that, um, Maulana Karenga makes the um, impeccable contribution, introducing Kwanzaa to our people. So teaching at um, Root um, Public Charter School under the leadership of the mighty Dr. Benita Thompson, I was teaching Kiswahili, which is a prerequisite for all the African independent schools that are part of the Council of, in of Independent Black Institutions. And I realized that the children knew very little about the geopolitical realities in the Kwanzaa-speaking nations in Mother Africa. So the play is written in Kiswahili with English subtitles. And what the focus is, is it's five homeless children in Tanzania who want to bring attention to the fact that there are 14 million homeless children in the eastern region of Mother Africa. And when they were doing their research, they found out that um, U.S.-born Africans celebrate Kwanzaa using um, Kiswahili tradition, the Kiswahili experience, the Kiswahili reality as the springboard as part of the decolonization process. A further analysis of the U.S.-born African experience, they realize that even though we're between 12 and 15 percent of the population, we're 43 percent of the homeless. So they were focusing on a Pan-African children's collaborative effort to eradicate homelessness for African children, both in the continent and in the diaspora. So that's what the play is about. The focus, the inspiration for it comes a few years before I accompanied Mama Benita to a, the annual celebration of another one of our African independent schools, Nation House, Watoto. And um, I realized that the children were doing Julius Caesar. And because of the strong nationalist and Pan-African focus, I was taken aback by that. But they were doing it in Kiswahili. So I'm wondering why. And just looking at their enthusiasm. So doing some research on my, my own, I realized that um, Walimu Julius Nyerere, the first president of Tanzania and leader of the Tanzanian Revolution, he wrote, he re, he wrote um, Julius Caesar in Kiswahili, word for word, originally written by William Shakespeare, of course, and made it compulsory for children in Tanzania to learn. I didn't understand that he was doing that to expose the cultural rooting of colonialism and the cultural rooting of imperialism, which is not really uh, clear. But nevertheless, he did this. And I know that at one point in the 1970s, you had teachers in the United States teaching our community that Shakespeare was of African ancestry, whatever the case may be. And Africans all over the world have an affinity to Shakespeare. Some show Ira Aldridge playing Othello. Of course, Paul Robeson playing Othello. So I promised myself at that moment, before I left this world, I would write something that focused on the African experience in the Kiswahili language. And... Um, Understanding the concept of least developed countries, where your economy plunders to the point that the United Nations takes over the control of it, um, 
and 37 of the nations that uh, are going through that are African nations of the uh, world's poor, extremely poor nations, which is a category that the United Nations comes up with. 25 of the poorest, 22 are in Africa. Only Afghanistan, the Solomon Islands, and 80 are not in Africa. So this, this is our reality. And using the children's experience to bring attention to this, on a holiday that we embrace, like a mother embraces a newborn child, it was um, very humbling for me, and uh, I hope people enjoy it, they get to see it. And in the times it has been shown since it was written three years ago, um, it's embraced very enthusiastically, and I hope that that's the case in Philadelphia today. And I'm happy that it's being done in Philadelphia when you understand the history of Philadelphia, because many would argue that our organized resistance begins in Philadelphia, because in the 1790s was when Bishop Richard Allen and Bishop Absalom Jones started the Free African Society. And then 101 years later, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois does the Philadelphia Negro Sociological Experiment, which is the reason that many people consider him the father of sociology, like we consider Dr. Woodson the father of African history. All right, hold up though right there. We've got to take a quick break, take our first look at the traffic and weather in our different cities. 14 minutes after the top of the hour, Brother Obi's our guest, along with Brother Richard, discussing the play, The Key Swahili Explosion, as it's going to be shown in Philly tonight. It's all part of this Kujijakalia, uh, self-determination as part of Kwanzaa, as we celebrate Kwanzaa all week long. Family, you want to join in in this conversation? Reach out to us at 800 450 7876, your phone numbers, your phone calls rather, in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Habari Ghani family, 20 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, the brother Obi, and also brother Richard in Philadelphia, are discussing a play that brother Obi produces called the Kiswahili Explosion. It's going to be shown in Philly tonight. Those of you who've got friends in Philly, we'll give you all the information how you can see it. And it's all in it's children's players, so that's what brother Obi works with, and it's all in Kiswahili. And brother Obi, before I take a call for you, uh, Kiswahili, do you think that will ever be the, uh, the, con- the, the, the langu- la- language of the continent, the entire continent, because you know, different South Africa like twenty different uh, languages and dialects, and other countries as well. So, do you think they'll ever? We can agree that all the other countries will agree that Kiswahili is should be the spoken language of the continent, or, or is that a pipe dream? Well, um, there's an argument that is going to be the African Union considers it um, one of their working languages right now, and this is primarily because. Like we said, it's spoken in Tanzania, Kenya, the Comoros Islands, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, the eastern part of the DRC, um, Zambia, Malawi, Madagascar, even as far as Oman. And so according to number, 200 million people at bare minimum can converse in it, speak it fluently and can converse in it. So based on its simplicity, based on um, the strategic importance of the Horn of Africa, it could actually become the language. And way before these dynamics took place, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S.-born African claimed it as their language. And then, of course, when you began to see many people um, going to Tanzania, our brother uh, Pete O'Neill, the former Panther for political reasons in Tanzania, 
for the same reason the mighty Asada Shakur is in Cuba. Um, Dr. John Henry Clark spent some time in Tanzania. Randall Robinson spent some time in Tanzania. I believe one of the uh, children of um, Jackie Robinson goes between Tanzania and Kenya. So Tanzania was always one of those hubs. And of course, Tanzania was the hub for four um, armed struggles in Southern Africa. Guerrillas representing Swapo and Swanu in Namibia, um, ZANU-PF in ZANU in Zimbabwe, Free Limo in Mozambique, and MPLA in Angola. Guerrillas were all there in Tanzania. So um, Tanzania is very central to many things. So this um, cultural uh, revolution, of course, which is inextricably tied to the day that Ghana, the Gold Coast became Ghana. And when you saw those 35 nations in Africa gain your independence between 1957 and 1960, all of them um, changed the name of the colonizer to a name that represented the authentic indigenous experience and reality. So, yes, so um, there's a possibility that Kiswahili could emerge as the one central language that we speak. As you said, we speak 5,000. But this is going to be a question about the language of resistance, which transcends those 5,000 indigenous languages our ancestors came up with and transcends, of course, the seven colonial languages forced on us through brutality, torture, and genocide. So we're talking English, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, German, and Arabic. And, and French. Portuguese. And French, of course. So yes, yes, yes. So um, it, it could be what the doctor ordered, that Kiswahili is spoken by every African on the planet. But um, right now, 200 million in Africa, and um, 50 years ago, um, we said it was ours right here in North America. All right. 800-450-7876. Mark is calling from Baltimore. He's on line three. Good morning, Mark. Yes, good morning, everybody. What I wish you and all your listeners a happy Kwanzaa. I am of the Jewish faith. We just celebrated Hanukkah uh, two weeks ago, and that uh, grew out of the, our holiday. It grew out of self-determination, if you will, uh, the struggle for freedom and for independence, if you will, from uh, evil forces. So my question is, I've been telling my friends uh, in the Jewish community a little bit about Kwanzaa, and they find it interesting because there are some similarities. But are there... Uh, Anything you want me to point out to the Jewish community how to improve our relations? You, uh, looking at this holiday, you know, between the black Jewish and black Jewish uh, friends and all that, uh, that we could be more together. We share a common struggle and common background, if you will. And what do you say? Thank you. Um, wow. <laughs> I, I, I would say that um, fight for the Africans and Palestinians, fighting for the liberation of Palestine and exposing Zionist Israel's crimes against the African continent is the way that we rectify that situation. Making the distinction between Zionism and Judaism. Zionism is a atheist political philosophy, which means it has nothing to do with Judaism, nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with Islam, nothing to do with Buddhism, nothing to do with any authentic religious or spiritual expression known to the human race. But in the colonialist and imperialist tradition, of conquering and plundering and raping and slaughtering people in the name of any God is a crime because there's no such thing as a Jewish race. There's no such thing as a Catholic race. There's no such thing as a Muslim race. And the first uh, Jews were Africans, the Ethiopians, the Falashians. 
So understanding Jewish history, but Jews showing the courage to fight Zionism, distinguish itself from Zionism, the same way Christians tell you every day that a, a ship to conquer our ancestors named after Jesus Christ has nothing to do with their sacred belief system. So um, that's the way that Africans can improve their relate. So Africans don't have to improve their relationship. What they have to do is just focus on the authenticity of Judaism, the same way they focus on the authenticity of Islam, the authenticity of Christianity. But in relationship to Judaism, it has the distinction of being the first monotheistic spiritual religious expression in the world, belief in one God. And since Africans gave that to the world, even acknowledged by Sigmund Freud in his book, Moses and Monotheism, that's what Africans have to do. Preserve the integrity of Judaism and preserve the integrity of every spiritual practice they choose, choose, whether it's one that comes out of Africa or one that started in Africa that they gave its origin to. And the best way we do that is to embrace our fighting spirit. So down with Zionism, smash Zionism, the hell with Zionism. It is a devil's practice. Asante Sana, Brother Obi, for that explanation. Brother Richard, uh, did you get any pushback when you decided to bring this, this play into Philly? Did any, was everybody on board with it? it? It was in the committee, in the program committee, there was discussion as, as they seen it um, in relationship to does it um, reflect self-determination um, or how um, what the, the children were presenting. And um, in the committee, and, and this is a report out of the committee, how this discussion went to the, to the broader body. So it was, it was um, not necessarily pushback, but it provided us the opportunity to be able to center um, how do we utilize um, what the children are and the play is expressing as a part of our historical narrative. As an example, in 1820, um, in Philadelphia, you know, because of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, um, it, it, provi- it was snatch up children, you know, because, you know, um, in Pennsylvania, the, the 1780 Gradual Abolitionist Act provided all African people the, the right to be, um, um, you know, relative citizens, right, of the state. Um, but but because Philadelphia was a central part of the quote-unquote Underground Railroad and because Philadelphia provided that nexus to freedom, um, Southern slave, slave, own, uh, slave owners um, actually would send people into Philadelphia to actually either try to recover what they consider as their human property um, or to try to snatch um, people in order to take them back down south. And the most vulnerable ones were children. And so um, out of our discussion, we've seen how, because of the social network that Brother Obi mentioned in building churches, building literary society, we've seen how it was a continuity in relationship to what the play expressed um, in dealing with the, the amount of children that are, are need our support, and it also uh, reflected the principle of self-determination and what we have to do. Um, Kwanzaa shouldn't be just something to celebrate. It should be a reflection of what we have to do 
in relationship to the principle that we lay, lay is laid out and the worldview that we express. And so it wasn't a pushback, but it provided us the opportunity to create a dialogue. All right. 30 minutes after the time, I asked Brother Richard in Philadelphia. They're showing a play uh, that was created by Brother Obi. The play's titled uh, The Key Swahili Explosion. And he, of course, if many of you have heard Brother Obi before, knows he puts on these plays with young people. So, Brother Obi, did you have any issues, problems? Because you said this is totally in Key Swahili. Did they have problems with the children learning the language? It, no, they had, it, they had it for a class. So it took us um, 75 days to get ready for it. And um, they were great because they already had the foundation. So they already knew how to count from one to 100 in key Swahili. They already um, could, had, they could greet each other in key Swahili. They could ask the basic questions. So they, the level of exposure, because we're all products of our exposure. So the quality exposure that African independent schools, shout out to the council of independent black institutions who have struggled to maintain schools like Ujima, schools like Nation House, schools like Roots that come out of the tradition. I would include Muhammad University of Islam in that process because um, when Clara Muhammad, um, the wife of the most honorable Elijah Muhammad started that, that was definitely a self-determining act. And remember, so um, no, the effort to spread key Swahili, it was very easy for them. So our task was not that difficult, but um, which was to take the language and deal with the uh, socio-political realities and, and geopolitical realities, both on the African continent and the diaspora. So the uh, springboard has already, and the foundation was already laid. So all we had to do was come in because one of the most important aspects and arguably the most challenging aspect of the decolonization process is to make our cultural, social, and political expression synonymous. Some have revolutionary political expression, but their cultural expression is red, white, and blue. And some have uh, revolutionary cultural expression, but their political expression is red, white, and blue. And I'm not talking about Cuban red, white, and blue, or Puerto Rican red, white, and blue. I'm talking Yankee Doodle Dandy. I'm talking Francis Scott Key. And some of us uh, have chosen this historical moment, as you know, Brother Carl, to be conveniently patriotic, to undermine African resistance. So um, we just decided that, um, so it was very easy to uh, get the children um, comfortable. And like we said, giving them a chance to have a understanding of what goes on in the Kiswahili speaking nations. So speaking the language of a nation, but not understanding the challenges of the nation, the challenges of the people, the strengths of the people, the weaknesses of the people, the vulnerabilities of the people is a disservice to the people. All right, we got to take a short break, take our first look at the news, traffic and weather in our different cities. Family just join us. Our guest is Brother Obi. You just heard his voice. Also, Brother Richard's in Philadelphia. And the, today they're going to debut a play that was put on by, produced by Brother Obi. It's called The Key Swahili Explosion and involves our children. As, uh, Brother Obi always works with our children. And it's totally in Swahili, but they've got subtitles for the folks who, who don't know Swahili uh, like other folks do, like Brother Obi and some other people very, very, very speak very eloquently in Swahili. As I mentioned, we've got to step aside and get caught up on the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities at 26 minutes away from the top of the hour. We'll be back in four minutes, though. If you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Phone calls next in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. 
And good morning once again, family, and thanks for rolling with us this morning. Abari Ghani for our, our family. Just uh, in momentarily, our guest is a Brother Obi and also Brother Richard. We're discussing a play that Brother Obi produced. It's going to be shown in Philadelphia tonight. It's called The Key Swahili Explosion. Before we go back to them, though, let me just remind you, later this morning, we're going to hear from reparations activist, Pan-African scholar, Dr. David Horn. Also, math guru uh, Akil Parker will be here. He's going to explain how to operationalize the Nguza Saba. <laughs> That's the seven principles of Kwanzaa using math in the black community. And tomorrow, she's going Kwanzaa, you can't speak about Kwanzaa without having the creative Kwanzaa, Dr. Milana Karenga. He'll join us tomorrow, along with DC activist Al Malik Farrakhan. We'll all be here. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Brother Richard, so if folks want to watch this tonight, where do they go? How can they see it? Uh, they can go to Eventbrite and, pu- and plug in Black Docents Collective. And the program will come up. You just register. And once you register, then you'll um, receive, to, you know, um, maybe an hour before the program, um, the link that will bring you into a Zoom. We're, we're glad at this point that we're able to show it through Zoom because then we can be able to reach more people, not just in Philadelphia, but in other, um, you know, locations around, around the country and around the world. All they have to do, again, is to go to Eventbrite. Um, tap it, you know, plug in black dosing. I know dosing sometimes everybody's saying, what is that? That's D-O-C-E-N-T-S collective. And that is a dosing is again, a tour guide. You plug in black dosing's collective in Eventbrite and you'll get, and you'll be able to, it'll come up and all you have to do is register and then you'll get the link and you'll be a part of the growing community being able to share in this, um, you know, particular principle of self-determination, but um, also the play, which is accentuating how children are demonstrating self-determination. And again, that's um, going to Eventbrite, Black Docents Collective, and you'll be able to um, register. All right, 18 away from the top here. Brother Obi, since it's in, in uh, Kiswahili, is this play being shown in any of the Kiswahili countries? Um, as of yet, no, no. Um, a few years ago, there were some people in Los Angeles who were talking about making a connection to Walimu Julius Nyerere's family. I think he had some relatives in Los Angeles, but eventually we're confident and enthusiastic that it will spread. Um, the focus has been since it was created three years ago was to use the platform to focus on language to focus on decolonization, and to uh, give a political dimension to Kwanzaa using children, because our children have always heightened our struggles at every phase of our resistance. Um, those who were part of the struggle in Birmingham against segregation know the role that the Children's Crusade played. Every time we focus on the Soweto uprising in Azania, South Africa, Hector Peterson being the first we lost on the front line who wasn't a teenager. Or if we focus on uh, Ruby Bridges or we focus on um, Emmett Till, children have always um, heightened the need to struggle, the value of struggle and the importance of struggle. So for us, it was a no-brainer to think about how to use children. And of course, um, 
on the African continent itself since 1992, we've been celebrating the Day of the African Child. And June 16th was selected to pay homage to Soweto. And 10 years before that, in 1982, the late Pan-African giant and first lady of Zimbabwe, Amaya Sally Mugabe, originally a Ghanaian, organized the largest children's conference in modern African history to deal with the needs of children, the medical needs of children, the political needs of children, the cultural needs of children. And because of the constant daily work for 10 years, that's when you had the Day of the African Child. And that's why every year here in the United States, we celebrate the Day of the African Child and Juneteenth simultaneously because we do not accept the amputated narrative of the African experience. Us, the, the continent being cut off from the diaspora, the diaspora being cut off from the continent, even though many right now are making it their crusade, if you will, to cut us off, to maintain the amputated narrative and to popularize it. Fools, yeah. fools, fools. Right. And that's what we find against. But I want to ask you, the, the, the play is focused on homelessness. Uh, can you tell us why you picked homelessness? Is homelessness a, a problem for our young people on the continent? And in Eastern Africa, there are 14 million homeless children as we're having this conversation. And that is tied to a bigger problem at a time where our children are talking about generational wealth, which is focusing on the accumulation of wealth. And there are around 2,600 billionaires on the planet worth $13 trillion. They are over 700 million people that live on $2.25 a day. 409 million of them can be found on the African continent itself. And they are some Caribbean nations subjected to that reality. And the U.S. born African, some consider this a distinction tragically, we're the most comfortable poor people on earth. So understanding that homelessness is inextricably linked to poverty and the perception that we have of poverty is something that needs to be escaped, not something that needs to be eliminated. This is why Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign shows how evolved he was as a strategist and an organizer. So understanding and, you know, you can escape poverty with a hip hop demo or if you run the 40 yard dash in 4.3 or if you have a jump shot like Steph Curry, you can escape poverty as an individual or if you hit the Powerball. But the reality is 43 percent of uh, we're 43 percent of the homeless in this country, even though we're between 12 and 15 percent of the population. So it is inextricably linked to the fact of what Kwame Ture used to always remind us, that Africa is the richest continent on the planet, but we are the poorest people on this planet. So dealing with the question of poverty in a dignified way and introducing the concept of class, because our resistance is geared to deal with racism lock horns with racism, expose racism, condemn racism, resist racism. But many use the struggle against racism to climb the ladder of capitalism. And we're hoping to get the same fervor and tenacity fighting capitalism the way we fight um, racism. So any focus on poverty is an excellent way to do that. So we thought that taking the African experience of children in East Africa dealing with the homelessness issue, and as I mentioned earlier, getting a better understanding of what least developed country status is, getting a better understanding of the category of nations that are considered extremely poor, 
and looking at Africa's relationship to that, and of course, looking at the experience in North America itself and looking at the poverty, whether you want to focus on Uniontown, Alabama, whether you want to focus on Chicago, where when they were threatening to close Chicago State University a few years ago, it was discovered that there are places in Chicago where families are living on $11,000 a year. And when you talk about the blue-collar crime in Chicago, this is ex- conveniently excluded from the conversation. So a play during a time that we're celebrating our resistance, because Kwanzaa is born out of resistance, gives us a chance to give this the proper historical context, but the proper modern-day context. All right, 12 away from the top of that, Brother Obi, you just heard him. He's, he produced this play for uh, uh, his friends in Philadelphia. It's called The Key Swahili Explosion, the Black Docent Collective, which is putting on this play from the uh, African American Museum in Philly. So I've got to ask you, Brother Richard, who's, who's with us. Brother Richard, have, has been an outreach to get young people in Philly to watch this play? Yeah, well, that was the major, one of the major focus in and right now, what we're asking is family and friends um, to, you know, have their children, um, pres- um, you know, to be a part of this. But to, to the short answer, your question is yes. Um, you know, through the networks that we're already engaged with, just like reaching out with Brother Obi um, and putting on the play, we have been, um, you know, focusing on trying to get um, children uh, of different ages to attend. And Brother Obi, speaking about age, what what ages are the the, the young people who were involved in this play? Um, this particular play was put on by fourth and fifth graders at uh, Roots Public Charter School um, three years ago. Shout out to Dr. Benita Thompson, the retired Dr. Benita Thompson, not retired from the struggle for African education, but retired from um, the leadership of Roots. Now under the leadership of my play cousin, Dr. Rashiki Kirkendall. So we would encourage people in the D.C. metropolitan area to build a support system for both the Roots Activity Learning Center and the Roots Public Charter School and figure out how you can support. Um, Call 202-882-5155 or 202-882-8073. Figure out how we can support and maintain that very important institution and pass from woman to woman. The same way that Mary McLeod Bethune passed the leadership of the National Council of Negro Women to Dr. Dorothy Height. So very, very important institution there. So the children were between um, fourth and fifth grade. So you're talking between you're going to see nine year olds and 10 year olds doing a production in Kiswahili. And they are English subtitles. Thank you for mentioning that, Brother Carl. So people will be able to keep up and catch the focus and the theme and the objective of the play. So when when was it, when was this produced, Brother Obi? This was originally produced three years ago. Okay. And uh, it, people keep it alive, especially during this time of the year. And it played a very important role in the way we approach plays because um, we did two plays at Roots um, during that time period. The first one we did was this Key Swahili explosion, and then we came back and did another one called "Y'all Understand What I'm Saying," which was a tri- which is a tribute to Paul Robeson who spoke 15 languages but could converse socially in over 20. And um, we put that on again this summer, and we had children pay homage to Paul Robeson in over 15 languages. So um, the strategy to use language beyond the colonial language we speak, that emanates from our time at Roots three years ago, and we've been affiliated with Roots for 33 years. So, so yes, yeah, so you're talking four 
fourth grade to fifth grade. So you're talking between eight and nine year olds. The oldest child in it was 10. And um, you have some drumming that was incorporated into the play. And the children who did the drumming are part of one of the most incredible drumming and dancing outlets in this country for U.S. born Africans. Farafina Khan, which has a dance studio in um, Mount Rainier, Maryland, for people who want to get their children into um, dancing and drumming, they can look into Farafina Khan. And of course, Brother Carl, it would be irresponsible of me not to offer uh, the community who's listening this morning, and we'll hear the recordings later, the opportunity to join the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company or the Mass Emphasis Positive Action or Creativity and Creativity Youth Brigade and the um, Mass Emphasis Children's Historical and Educational Navigational Institute, which are three African history classes that are taught on Saturdays, one from 10 to 11, one from 3 to 4, and one with children in Canada from 5 to 6. So that's what we have going on. All right. Well, hold that thought right there. we got to take another quick break and check the traffic and weather for our folks out in the streets this morning. Also, the news for our listeners in Baltimore. When we come back, family, you want to join this conversation with Brother Obi. You just heard Brother Richard. So we're discussing the Kisahili explosion. It's a, it's a play put on by uh, Brother Obi, and it's going to be shown you know, on behalf of the fellows, uh, our family in Philadelphia. So reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. This is the second day of Kwanzaa, Kuji Jackalia, self-determination. Momentarily, we're going to speak with uh, math guru uh, Akil Parker, but right now we're with Brother Obi and Brother Richard. They're putting on a play in Philly. It's already played. It's going to be shown in Philly tonight. It's the Kiswahili Explosion. Actually, anybody around the world can watch it. But uh, Brother Richard, a tweeter wanted to know, how does one become a black docent? Uh, Well, you, you usually just have to go to a museum um, and a museum a museum has a program um, to, to become. But for Black Docents Collective, all you have to do is go to our website. And and when you go to our website, you can be able to, you know, sign up, and then we'll go take you through a process of being able to become a member of the Black Docents Collective. Um, we're, we're looking for people who are already in, or who have an interest in history, um, looking for people, and we're kind of focusing on Philadelphia-specific, but anybody could, who has an interest, um, because the techniques of being able to deliver a historical narrative of, is something that can be used at any museum, but we are focusing on developing the history of Black Philadelphia. So if you go to our website, Black Docent Collective, um, you um, put in your email, and then someone will get back with you and that's how you begin the process all right and and for tonight what what do they have to do all they have to do is go to eventbrite um put in black docent collective you'll see the um program come up register and and you'll get the link for the program it starts at 7 p.m so um anytime between six and seven um you know if you have already you can register now and then you'll get the link um, from Eventbrite, and then you'll be able to enter into the program, which starts at 7, 7 p.m. Right. 
as for anybody in around the world who's listening can get in on this uh, you know not just for our listeners in philly but uh brother obi you know i, I just want to okay. thank you for for what you have doing working with our, our young people because w- what you're teaching them they're going to keep this for the rest of their lives they're going to remember that they were in a play speaking uh, key Swahili throughout an entire play to probably you know get more immersed in the language so I want to thank you because you, you mentioned that we all have a role to play in the struggle and you've you figured out this is your role working with our young people which is great because they will carry this throughout as I mentioned throughout their lives they're easier to teach young people than to teach adults as I, I imagine but before we go is there anything else that you're working on that you, you want to share with us well of course um, you've given us a platform to talk about the um Decided to call to the defense campaign, so that work continues. We'll come back and want to talk about that. And um, we're going to talk to you about uh, a warrior in the D.C.-based area that we're going to bring on that has a campaign dealing with the violence in D.C. Um, what I wanted to say is um, here we are with this Pan-African focus, but we are touching an organization in Philadelphia that has a local focus. So this meant that you can um, have the Pan-African focus but it doesn't touch the local reality or the national reality. Of course, we're debunking that every day. And I just wanted to close by saying that um, we um, really appreciate WOL embracing Kwanzaa to the degree that you have. And the reason that's important is because it makes a statement to the United States government that we will not be divided because every time we bring up Kwanzaa, people will talk about the shootout between us and the Black Panther Party in California, where Bunchy Carter and um, John Huggins lost their lives. And they attempt to divide us and make us choose, like we have to choose between us and the Panthers. The same way they made us think we had to choose between Dr. King and Malcolm. The same way they made us think we had to choose between Madiba Nelson Mandela and Robert Mugabe. And they, the same way they, going way back, they made us think we had to choose between Frederick Douglass and Henry Highland Garnett. So we're not going to allow our enemies and their vicious genocidal institutions exploit our differences. We must confront our differences, gain an understanding of our differences, so the enemies cannot manipulate those differences. So, Brother Carl, we thank you for this opportunity this morning and always using your platform to advance struggle. You. you know what? Let me jump in and thank you for, for saying what you just said, because some uh, people are still confused. They don't understand how the system of racism, white supremacy works, keeping us fighting against each other. You just you just laid it out right there. And this is why, you know, people, you mentioned us, uh, the Dante Karenga and the Panthers. And, and then, you know, many folks don't even know that uh, Dante Karenga was, you know, just he was an integral part of the Million Man March with, with Minister Farrakhan. They've already uh, uh, they've already figured out that it, Worked on that. We worked on that with him specifically yeah. on the day of absence and day of action campaign, which resulted right. in anywhere between four million to six million people not going to work in school and organizing campaigns and activities in their local community to give a foundation to those the two million who assembled in D.C. No question. So right, because, you know, we, we, we have a tendency to blame each other and not look at how the system is working us to fight against each other. That's what we need to focus on. So I, I just want to thank you for sharing that, because not, 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 so, not, not many people get the, that vision that you just, just laid out right there, brother. Well, besides, I, want to share, I just want to, you know. You have to be involved in struggle to arrive at that conclusion, brother Paul. Many of the people who peddle these narratives are distinguished members of what we call the Valley of the Talking Heads. 
They do nothing. They contribute nothing. They have something to say about everything. Ashe. All right. Thank you, Brother Obi. Thank you, Brother Richard. And, and congratulations on the Key Swahili Explosion family. Just Google it and you get more information about it. This is Brother Obi, again, working with our young people. Seven minutes after the top of the hour, though, let's we move on. Our next guest is Brother Akil Parker. Akil, good morning. Good morning, brother. Brother Carl Abarigani. Abarigani, my brother. Uh, thank you for joining us on, on this Kuji Chagalia Day, Self-Determination. We know we're going to talk about that momentarily. But you wrote a book, uh, How to Use All This Math. Can, can you explain, first of all, because you've been here before, but why did you decide to write this book? I decided to write this book because it's like, you know, it's based on something that you said when you were talking to uh, Brother Richard and uh, Brother Obi, is that everybody has their part to play in the struggle. And my part that I'm playing in the struggle is to help our community um, every member of our community be able to gain a better understanding of mathematics so that they can impart that wisdom and that knowledge and that utility to their children, their children, their grandchildren, their nieces, their nephews and whatnot, so that they never, those children never actually develop, get the chance to unfortunately develop what a lot of people develop, which is a form of math anxiety or math phobia where they fear math. So the book is essentially where I take everyday activities, you know, meet people where they are, you know, whether it's riding in the car to run errands with their parents, um, going into the kitchen to get a snack, um, just having different conversations about, you know, historical events, you know, within the family. And I use those as a foundation to teach algebra, arithmetic, and geometry concepts. So that way, if their children, you know, end up, if they do go to public school, public school, charter school, private schools, um, especially those that are not controlled by us, which most are not, um, they already will be very familiar with a lot of the con concepts and a lot of the curricula that uh, curricula topics that they're presented, you know, whether it be fractions or ratios, proportions, negative numbers, decimals, and all types of, you know, whatever, you know, do math that we might want to call it. You know, if they're doing these things on a regular basis, like in the house, you know, um, when they get confronted with these things in class, then the really school becomes just a space for practice, practicing the things that, their household members or their loved ones and their elders and their old heads have already been teaching them anyway. So the book is a, you know, a, a very specific, you know, guidebook to show, you know, our people like how to, how to do this, you know, instead of just, you know, me just talking about it. I've been talking about it for a long time, but then I realized that people need tangible, concrete resources, you know, that they can like look at, use, and then duplicate on a regular basis. So that's what, that's what the book is. All right, and I just thank you. This book would make a good uh, pr uh, present for those folks who who celebrate Kwanzaa uh, as a gift for our young people. So if you got a child or or a grandchild, this would be a great gift for them. You know, because the last time we talked about, uh, we mentioned Baltimore, but Baltimore's not the only one where our children are underperforming, but woefully underperforming. The schools are just just, just just straight up. The schools are a mess in Baltimore, but they they're also bad just all across the country, and, and there's no imperative to clean them up. Because they don't want to educate us. That's, that's first. Let's do, we got to admit that you know we, our children are being miseducated, and it's not by accident. It's, it's, it's done. You know, it's, it's done by deliberately. They're, they're, they're miseducating our children. But here's what your book can do: can help us bridge that gap when it comes to mathematics. So, what would you say to a parent who's listening today, or even a teacher who's listening today, or even a math teacher? What would you tell them? How can we change this around? Because again, we talk about it all the time. Nobody's going to solve our problems but ourselves, because those are our problems. So we've got to solve them. So I'm glad that you wrote this book. But what would you tell the instructors and the parents who have children in schools? 
I would say I would say first that you know we have to recognize everything that you just said. The fact that this is not coincidental, nor is it accidental. And we also have to consider our orientation, you know, our political and cultural orientation when we address this issue. Um, and we have to realize that this system is not broken at all. The system works very efficiently and at a high level. It's a very um, highly coordinated machine with a lot of moving parts. Um, and we have to think, we have to consider ways to actually break it, not to fix it. You know, um, and one of the ways, one of the best ways to do that is for us to take a more self-reliant approach and a more nationalistic approach in terms of, you know, um, providing for our children and for our communities the things that, you know, our people need. I think it's a really a mindset that we have to really develop and start to develop and start to reinforce on a daily basis and, and move beyond, um, you know, just, you know, during the seven days of Kwanzaa at the end of the year, a lot of times there's a lot of energy uh, poured into, you know, um, you know, programming and whatnot where we get to think about this. But we have to figure out some ways where we can be more consistent. And, you know, on, you know, in January, January 2nd, you know, that's the, that becomes a question. Like, what are we going to do on January 2nd? You know what I'm saying? Because after the Karama was done and you know, all the foods eaten and the dishes got washed, you know what I'm saying? Like, what are we doing on January 2nd and January 3rd? So you really got to operationalize those, those Nguzo cyber, cyber principles and, you know, really you know, decide that once and for all, you know, regardless of what, you know, the Europeans are doing, what the, you know, the people that control the government are doing, regardless of what anybody's doing, like, what are we going to do, you know, for our own people and start looking at ways to like, you know, take the resources that are available and, you know, use them to teach our children, you know, um, especially the things that we never learned. And also as parents, we have to stop thinking that math education is just for the children because it's really not. Because if you're a parent, if you're 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, or grandparent, aunt, uncle, whoever, big cousin, you know, if you have those deficiencies because, you know, you were victimized by a school system that miseducated or diseducated you, it's not too late for you to learn because you got to learn it. And also, that's that's a good form of modeling for young people anyway. So as you want to help them to develop their skill set, you know, sit down at that table right along with them, roll up your sleeves and let them know that, listen, I need to learn this also. So it's really become, it becomes a, t a team oriented effort to develop those those math skills, because that's something that I really want to emphasize a lot more in, in 2024, which is, you know, parents, um, parents and elders attempting to educate themselves a lot more as opposed to having this attitude that a lot of us have, which is, you know, this kind of it's too late for me attitude. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? As African people, people of African descent, you know, we should be lifelong learners anyway. You know, so if there's, you know, some algebra that you didn't learn when you was in seventh grade or some geometry that you didn't fully grasp when you was in 10th grade, it's never too late to learn that now. I mean, we often, we oftentimes yeah. always talk about very easily the financial literacy that we never gained and the things we didn't know about investing or budgeting and things like that. And we're never too old to go back and learn that. We should be doing right. the same I'm thing. I'm going to let that right there, Brother Key. We're going to take a short break, and I love what you're talking about. When we come back, I want you to expound on that. Also, how, as you mentioned, how to operationalize the Nguzu Saba 24-7-365 using math in the black community. I want you to explain that to our listeners. As I mentioned, we've got to step aside and get caught up with the latest traffic and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes, though, at 14 after the top of the hour, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W O where information is power.
And good morning, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, the math guru. That's what we like to call him. His name is Akil Parker. He's written a book, All This Math, All This Math, Volume 1. It's a solutions book for the folks who have math phobia like myself. It's a great book. They also make a great Kwanzaa present for your youngsters or, or for your grandchildren or children. And before we left, we were going to discuss how to operationalize the Anguza Saba 24-7, 365, using math in the black community. But before we do that, Akil, Rick is calling us from the district he's on line one he has a comment or a question for you good morning rick good morning brothers family can you hear me okay yes, sure sir. can you hear? okay great hey um yeah i would just like to thank the brother so much and i would like to ask him a question right as i was um like i normally do with this specific grandchild as we were riding home i asked her how you how'd your day go uh do you have any homework she said, I did all my homework before. I said, well, what are y'all going over? She said, I said, what math are you going over? She said, decimals and fractions. So I asked her about a quarter and what would that be as a decimal? She said, 0.25. I said, how did you know that? Because she said, it's a quarter and it's a zero in front of it because it's not a whole number. I said, oh, that's good. I say, well, since you know it's a quarter as a fraction, how do you change that fraction into a decimal? She didn't know. And I was like, that's good. And I said, as simple as you understood that a quarter was two, two five, and you put a zero behind it because it wasn't a dollar twenty-five. You it's, it's, it's that much simpler to know if you took the bottom number and divided it into the top number, that's how you get the 25%. So with that being said, I asked her again about her homework, and I noticed my older grandchildren, they always say, I don't have no homework. And I'm asking my children, what the hell, why? why? They say, oh, they do everything online. I'm challenged, and uh, like my brother, Mr. Fuller, say, I'm still learning, and I'm, I'm challenging myself to get more up to speed with uploading, downloading, this and that and the other. But they're doing everything online. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? So um, I'm glad you bring that up. Um, I wouldn't say that, so I, I want to be very clear on how I answer this. I wouldn't say it's a necessarily good or bad thing, um, but I do think there can be some very negative outcomes if the work that's being done online is not supplemented with children having the opportunity to write things down, you know. Um, and I think wow. because children are being conditioned now to just, you know, find the answer. Usually there's like multiple choice questions that are online. Um, or even open response that's online, and you know there's it's they're incentivized to want to just like you know spend less time really thinking about thinking through math problems um, and just just typing in answers, you know because uh, I see that in a lot of my tutoring sessions. You know I have to tell the young brothers and young sisters like you know make sure you got your notebook, your notebook and a pencil or a pen, even you know we're, and we're writing the answers down, not just going directly to the online. Um, to, to, the, to the website to just type in the answer or select the answer. So um, I think that that has to be managed and that has to be, you know, we have to be, you know, intentional about making sure that children have paper, notebooks, pencils, and pens to actually write out the work so they can actually see. So cause, because what you're doing is you're creating your own personal textbook. 
when you when you just strictly are online with your laptop or your tablet or even your smartphone and you're just clicking and answers, there's no reference. There's nothing you can go back to and really be able to see and really be able to see, okay, this is how I did that problem correctly. So when it's time for the test or the quiz or the assessment, you're able to go back and study your notes and, and read what you did and even redo some of the problems, you know. So I definitely think writing is something that children have to be able to do with mathematics especially, you know, because there's so many details in mathematics um, that, you know, we want our children to have access to. So definitely. Um, and what, what you bring up with your, with your, uh, your grandchild about um, while, she, while they have, they know that one-fourth is equal to 0.25. This is, this is what the, one of the things that a lot of people are pushing back on now in terms of, you know, the so-called new math. Because um, a new math is meant to actually address that issue which is making sure that children have a conceptual understanding of, you know, not just knowing that one-fourth is equal to 0.25, but understanding why one-fourth is equal to 0.25, and also being able to basically stand on business in math and be able to prove that one-fourth is equal to 0.25 in the event that somebody tries to come, come up to you and convince you that it's not. And we see this every day as adults. You know, people get scammed every day financially because they don't know how to do the math. And they don't know how to prove that this amount is equal to that amount. So somebody ends up getting overcharged. You know what I'm saying? So these are things that are very early. Yeah. You know, know the other thing is that I'm scratching my head. I'm glad you corrected me in a subtle way. Is the one quarter equal to 0.25 or 0.25 is one of the same? Essentially one of the same. Um, Thank you. I feel better. of like more of a formal way to write it, but you know, zero point two five, point two five are essentially synonymous. It might, it, it may have something, something to do with significant digits when you get into like you know the sciences and whatnot. Um, that's something that I forget. You know, even I forget that from time to time. It's an issue with oh, significant. Feel better. Yeah, yeah. Feel better. Well, let me ask you something. I have a lot of brothers that are from different parts of the continent, and I feel like they're quicker at math. And then so much of the Jamaicans, the uh, the brothers from um, different parts of overseas, and they, they they they're more quicker. When we went through the electrical apprenticeship, where I had to go through remedial programs, I would go to them to get me more on speed, and it's it's a quicker type of math. Can you talk about the different? ways of the math being taught over here than say like China or this and that. Now, are they doing something different? Are they making it more simplistic or, or what's the deal? All right. That's an I excellent question. Thanks, Rick. Thanks. I think there's a few things that are going on. Um, I think there's more, again, more of a conceptual understanding is being emphasized at a, from a very early age. And with that, as a child, you're able to see relationships between numbers and you're able to develop fluency. And like, you're able to like, it's kind of like looking at a painting, right? Like 10 people can look at a painting and all see something different. Um, based on part of your introduction to numbers and computation and arithmetic, um, if you have a more deeper foundational understanding of concepts, then you can kind of see relationships between numbers and figure things out that another person that doesn't have that, um, that, it, that hasn't been introduced to numbers that way will not be able to see. So I think that's one thing. And I also think that it's more, more time is being spent with practice. It's like, you know, like, like you said, um, and a lot of people are dealing with this, like there's this push to like not have homework and not have math homework and people, you know, make arguments and, 
you know, they, they try to cite research. And you got a lot of people that don't even understand statistics claiming that they cite research that says homework don't help. And, you know, so I'm like, okay, show me this. Let's, let's really unpack and dig into this research that you claim shows that math homework is not going to help people really understand mathematics. That's the conversation I want to have. Because people will be on social media or radio programs, or whatever, just say, oh, the research says this. No, nah, let's talk about that research. Let's, let's really get down to the nitty gritty and really talk about this research. So I think that also in those places, people are actually practicing on a daily basis and a regular basis to develop these skills um, so that they're able to. Because it's, it's like sports. Like math is like sports. Like how can you become a star athlete, a top tier athlete if you're not practicing at all, especially from a young age, right? right. It, comes, it, it comes with practice. You know, math is, is the same thing because you got to become more and more familiar. You got to develop what I call a mathematical muscle memory. And without practice and without homework, you can't really develop that mathematical muscle memory. And it, that kind of feeds into this whole idea or this mythology that there is a such thing as a, you know, like, you know, these, these math geniuses that are just born and not, not made. You know, be, be, you know, well, let me jump in and ask this question then, uh, you know, uh, before I take a call for you, Charles III wants to speak here. But let me ask you this question, uh, sort of what Rick mentioned about the, the uh, brothers and sisters from overseas seem more proficient in mathematics. Because there was a young brother from, uh, I think, Nigeria. He solved a math problem nobody else in the entire world could, could solve. It, it was this it was this brother just gifted? Uh, is this a, an anomaly or are their educational system better than ours? Well, I'd be curious to see, like, who his teachers are, you know, and I, I'd be curious to see, like, how much time he's spending on a regular basis, you know, just thinking about math and engaging, you know, different mathematical um, formulas and equations and, you know, different, you know, um, algorithms and whatnot. Um, I don't know a whole lot about the Nigerian um, education system. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still a, it's, a, it's a colonial, you know, system similar to the United States. So, you know, it definitely has, you know, its own issues being that being said with that being it. But, uh, or I should say a neo-colonial um, system. But um, I'm glad to see, you know, that, that the brothers has embraced mathematics and not bought into the negative propaganda that, you know, math is not for us and not for our people. You know, that's the exclusive domain of white folks. Even though a lot of us, and I can speak firsthand because I remember being reflective when I was young, I bought into this whole notion, this idea that mathematics is the exclusive domain of non-black people. And I saw it as a way to gain some type of honorary whiteness at a, at a young age. I didn't understand that, I, that that's what I was doing when I was young. But when I got older, you know, looking back in retrospect, um, that is that is something that I was doing. And I, I, I definitely want to have more explicit conversations about that to prevent our children from doing that, because that's a way to, you know, to, to lose while you think that you're winning. Yeah, that's how the system of racism, white supremacy works. <laughs> you blame everybody else and not looking at what, who's who's behind it. That's the system. Anyway, as I mentioned, uh, 28 away from the top of the hour. Charles is waiting for us. He's calling from the district. He's on line two. Good morning, Charles. Is Charles there on line two? Hello? Oh, there you go. Hello. Go ahead, Charles. Okay, thanks for taking my call, uh, brother. Good conversation. Uh, when you talk about the practice, I was recently... Uh, working with a kid, and I always told him practice makes better. Getting better gives you confidence with the math. Uh, a quick question there. Uh, with the math, uh, multiplications and fractions, the only thing I know how to get kids better is constant drills and drilling, okay? And somehow the parents got to understand you just got to keep working, 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 and, and make it a game. Uh, you know, uh, with one young man, I was teaching him on a cadence to, to learn his math. 
you know, uh, uh, four, eight, 12, and just, just go. But here's a question I have for you is that uh, I was speaking with a school teacher in the D.C. public schools, and she mentioned uh, they have COVID kids. And she said, and I asked, well, what do you mean? She said, well, the students are all behind. And with the students being behind, they're still giving these national exams. And she said they're all about a year behind. So what? how, how can they make this up? Because even though, let's say, they're in the third grade, uh, and if they're behind at a second grade level and they're taking these standard exams, they're set up to fail. There's no way they're going to be uh, uh, passing those national exams because they're not adjusting for COVID. So what would you recommend children and young people do from a math standpoint to try to catch up because it's accepted throughout that the students across the country are about a one year or two years behind. And that's in the public schools where the private schools kept up and they were in class. Thanks. And that's I'll a, that's a great question, there. Charles. That's an excellent question there. And you also mentioned <laughs> that, the, you know, the practice, and, and you know, we talked to Michael Jordan, you ask him how much, how many times he played basketball, how much practice he did. And that's how uh, Kobe Bryant co- copied him and got that Mamba uh, mentality because they were in the gym a lot. And if, if we can translate that to being in the classroom more as, as on the basketball court, I think we'll succeed. But I'll tell you what, hold on a second, brother. Uh, we got to take a quick break here and check the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. When you come back, I'll let you respond to Charles's questions. A great question, by the way. Family, you want to join this conversation? 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB in the DMV run FM 95. 95- point nine and AM fourteen fifty WOL where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 19 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest. Uh, he's a math guru. His name is Akil Parker. He's written a book called All This Math. Those of you who have math phobia, you should pick up this book if you've got children or grandchildren because it's not that difficult. You know, once we know that who created math, you, you, you'll, uh, you know, it'll be a lot easier for you to absorb. Before we go back to another, let me remind you, come later this morning, we're going to speak with uh, uh, Dr. David Horn. And tomorrow, since we have Kwanzaa week, a uh, man who created Kwanzaa, Dr. Milana Karenga, will be here along with DC actress Al Malik Farrakhan. It's going to, they have a, a, a program coming up next week, a, a free uh, from, uh, let me see this, from uh, Ceasefire and Don't Smoke the Brothers. That, he's from that group. Anyway, they're all going to be here. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So, Brother Key, I'll let you respond to Charles's question. So I like Charles's question, but one of, the, one of the things I want us to keep in mind when we when we have these conversations around the pandemic, whenever the pandemic is brought up, I think we have to be very careful because even though the a lot of our children and our students fell behind, we have to understand where they were starting from. So we have to understand that in 2019, our children were already behind, and we have to be very honest about that. Um, Because if we say, if we attribute the learning loss and the learning gaps and the deficiencies solely to the pandemic, and it, you know, we're not, we're not doing a fair assessment and analysis of the seat of the problem and where we started from. So it makes it seem as though it's going to be much easier to, you know, to get back to some type of equilibrium and it's not. So first I have to address that. Secondly, we have to become committed to actually overcoming these deficiencies. I just commit to doing that. Like I, I realized that math 
is what I term an accepted deficiency. You know, people, you know, trauma bond over, you know, their deficiencies in math. And people kind of kind of laugh and joke about the fact that, you know, they're not. They was never good at math and they kind of, you know, never excelled in math. And it's kind of seen as it's okay. And we don't have the same type of conversations about, like, not understanding, you know, not having English language literacy, right? So I think that, you know, we got to think about that as well. But the key really is practice, you know, practice on a consistent basis, um, becoming, de- developing a strategy and a plan of attack, right, um, for, for children, um, attempting to become more, play a more active role and become more involved in what the ch- what your children are learning in their public school or their charter school or their private school. Um, and this is, of course, where, you know, like I said earlier in, in the program, as parents and as adults, it's never too late for us, you know, to learn the mathematics um, so that we can actually help our children more. And also, what I also would say, and this is, you know, my plug, um, two resources that I've created, you know, specifically to address this issue and this, you know, this learning loss, whether it be from the pandemic itself or whether it was the learning loss prior to the pandemic, because I started teaching high school math in 2005. And that was way before we even knew that, you know, I have ever heard the term coronavirus. And children in classrooms that I was in, you know, already had a lot of issues. Um, even children when I'm when I'm growing up in Baltimore, going to Roller Park or going to Poly, like children, you know, that, I, that my peers, you know, and even myself at times, you know, we had, you know, certain uh, like deficiencies, you know, in mathematics. But um, definitely the How to Use All This Math Volume 1, the book is meant to do that, right? This is meant to be a solution to that, meant to enable that, that practice on at home, you know, and on a regular basis. And also the All This Math YouTube channel. Where you know we have about we have about seven hundred videos ranging in topics from basic arithmetic, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, fractions, mixed numbers, all the way up to calculus one. So those resources are readily available. Um, you know the book is available, of course, on on Amazon, um, but the YouTube channel is available on you know on Beyonce's internet. You know what I'm saying? So you can just you know just go go to YouTube and just you know type in all this math. And, you know, and you can you can just see like video content and everything is organized in the playlist. But practice is key. You know, practice is key. And but I think it's implementation because I think every like everybody knows that, yeah, our children need to practice more. Our children need to practice more. But the question is, how are you actually how are you actually going to do it? Because everybody's busy. Everybody's got 50, 11 million things to do. Um, but we have to prioritize it and we got to become serious about the fact that, you know, this is a, this is urgent. You know, this is not you know, it's, there's no time for playing like. You know, that we're not just competing and our children are not just competing against other ethnic groups, other, you know, racial groups, other people. We're competing against computers now. We're competing against artificial intelligence now. Like, you know, so it's, it's you know, the plot is really thickening. And, you know, STEM is, is something that, you know, is even becomes even more and more important. You know, if you're just focused on labor, just focused on your children being able to provide for themselves and provide food, clothing and shelter for themselves. So... Yeah, so it's got to be some type of sense of urgency as well, and you know it's, we got we have to prioritize this, you know, a lot right. more. So Four, yeah. fourteen away from the top. Yeah, thanks, Akil. Uh, and brother and Kosi's joining us. He's uh, calling from Chicago. He's on line one. Brother and Kosi, you're on with Akil. Jumbo, my brothers. Um, I, I I I believe that the pyramid were built with mathematical concepts that exceed anything we know today. And those were built by our people a long, long time ago. However, we may have lost that knowledge, but with brothers like Akil around to uh, uh, give a gut punch to the disempowerment 
of black people because we have been, and I'm a victim of this also, uh, taught to be phobic of math. I just, I just heard you mention the Nigerian child that solved the problem that no one else could solve. And I just wanted to make sure that it was mentioned that uh, John Glenn wouldn't have made his space flight without the participation of the sister. And there were two other sisters with her uh, that worked at NASA. He chose their input over everything else, uh, all all the computer and everything else that were around. He chose their input to part his space flight. Uh, and they made a movie about it. I think it was called Hidden Figures. It was those yes. three sisters from down south. I just figured that uh, that had to be mentioned also when it comes to math proficiency. And I think, Brother Akil, you're doing a great job. I'm going to get a couple of those books. Uh, and I don't hardly have bought any books, but I'm going to get a couple of those for my grandchildren and my um, uh, nephews and nieces. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Brother Nkosi. And you weren't the only one, Brother Nkosi, you have math phobia. I did, too. I'll admit that all the way through college, as a matter of fact, math phobia. But, uh, Akil, you, anything you want to respond with Brother Nkosi just said? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I appreciate the call. I'm glad you called in because that, that addresses another point. And, you know, it, it reminds me of something that, um, you know, point of development in my own trajectory is that, like, I think we have to make sure that while we remind children that, you know, our, their ancestors, our ancestors actually built the pyramids. They, they, weren't, they weren't built by aliens. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, racist so-called Egyptologists want us to believe that just as a way to discount the, um, the brilliance of, um, you know, uh, ancient comedic civilization. But, um, you know, we were using mathematics. Um, you know, many, many thousands of years ago, and we were able to, able to construct these um, these wonders, right? Architectural um, feats. But uh, in addition to that, so beyond when we say that, we let the children know that, and this is something I had to learn because I used to just only kind of only make that that comment. But I think we have to also kind of, um, and this is why I, I advocate heavily for adults to develop their own skill set with this. Because after we tell the children that their ancestors built pyramids and we're using geometry and calculus and trigonometry in order and arithmetic in order to do that, that we have to be able to sit down at a table with them, roll up our sleeves and do some geometry with them, do some arithmetic with them and show them how to do it. Right. Um, but a lot of times that requires us to know how to do it ourselves. And if we don't know how to do it ourselves, then that means we got to learn it. Just like, you know, we learn other things. But as I said, we're lifelong learners. You know, that's what we are, we've always been. That's cultural for us. We're lifelong learners. And I think we have to also, one of the things that holds a lot of people back is this kind of way that we identify intelligence and knowledge development with our K-12 schooling experience. So it's as if, you know, once you graduate from high school, a lot of us, if you don't go into post-secondary education formally, then you feel like, well, you don't really have that much, anything else to learn because the system has already given you everything that you need. That couldn't be further from the truth. A lot of people go into college, get bachelor's degrees, and then they say, well, I don't ever need to read a book again. I already got my degree. That couldn't be further from the truth. Um, even some people get master's degrees and terminal degrees um, and kind of feel the same way. That couldn't be further from the truth. So I think that once we, when we do let children know that, you know what? Your ancestors built pyramids. This is in your DNA. This is in your blood, right? Um, 
you got to show, we got to be able to sit down at tables and in community centers and, and basements and dining room tables and wherever, and just, or on the, on the street corner on the block, you know, and be able to have these conversations around math and be able to actually teach this math, right? Teach it to them, you know, step by step and do actual problems, you know, um, as a way to leverage this idea that, you know, their ancestors built pyramids, you know what right. I mean? And I think that's, you know, that's one. That's, that's, I'm just saying because we're coming up on a break real soon, but I want you, if you give us the short version of how to operationalize the Anguza Saba 24-7, 365, using math in the black community. Yeah, so the short version of that would be, so we look at the Anguza Saba, we take today, for example, um, you know, Kuji Chakalia. Uh, one of the ways we can do that is we can name our own algorithms. You know, we can make a decision that, you know what, yeah, you know, I've, I've learned about the Pythagorean theorem, yeah, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, but... When we do a little, we do a little research. We realize that Pythagoras studied in ancient Kemet for 22 years, right? So he studied under our ancestors. So we can just, you know, do small things like we can rename it. We can call it whatever we want, you know. We can just say a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Or, you know, as we, you know, we're learning mathematical concepts. Um, like I, I have a a way of approaching algebra. I have, I have methods where I use Malcolm X. I have, I have Malcolm X methods of different algebra concepts, right? Um, and, you know, why do I do that? Because I like to evoke the name of ancestors. And I think that whenever we evoke the name of an ancestor, we're in conversation with the ancestor. And like I mentioned Pythagoras earlier, Pythagoras is not my ancestor. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to be in conversation with him. I would like to be in conversation with Omawali Malcolm X, though. So when I'm doing math problems and I'm, I'm teaching math, math problems to young people and I say, OK, yeah, we're about to use the Malcolm X method. That's what we're doing. We're invoking that brother's name. We're evoking that ancestor's name, and we're also providing a cultural connection to the mathematics, which is often—I'm not even going to say it's lacking. What does have there is a cultural connection to a lot of mathematics that we learn. The issue is it's not our culture; it's somebody else's culture. So they're using—you know—we're learning mathematics through a through a cultural lens that is foreign to us, which is dangerous because then we get into what the late Baba uh, Amos Wilson talked about which is that's one of the tools where we be, we're trained to be the black face of white power because we learn these math skills. Uh, we learn a lot of skills, but when we learn them through a lens that is not our own, it's not African centered, then we become weaponized against ourselves. So, you know, I, you know, we could say Kuji Chakalia to be able to determine that, okay, when we teach in math, when we're learning math, we're going to learn it through an African centered lens. Um, a lot of the other principles can be used as well, like within specific, you know, math concepts and, you know, math topics like Umoja yesterday, you know, we can combine like, so when you get into algebra, you know, you're simplifying expressions, you know, those of us that are familiar, combining like terms is a, is a major um, component of doing algebra, combining like terms, organizing your problems, um, and even like Ujima, um, where, you know, we have, um, you know, collective work and responsibility, um, there's be such things as combined work problems. You know, if I hold that thought right there. I'll let you finish on the other side. We got to take a quick break here. We got to check the traffic and weather in our different cities and and also the news for our listeners in Baltimore. Let me read this real quick, though. A tweeter just says he doesn't have a math phobia. He's straight up terrified of it. Says math is the only subject where you have to use 110 percent of your brain. But you can't do math if you can't read. I want you to respond to that, too. Also, the fact that, you know, people are complaining about the school systems. And instead of complaining about the school system, you got to do something. You got to be proactive. 
active. And this is what you can do if you want to shore up those math scores. You speak to a brother like Akil. And we'll do that in four minutes right here at 26 away from the top. They are in Baltimore where they've got a lot of math problems in the school system. On 1010 WLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL where information is power. Keep Abarigani family, this is the second day of Kwanzaa, Kujichagalia, self-determination. Momentarily speaking with Dr. David Horn, he's a Pan-Africanist scholar, one of our top scholars, also a reparationist, but right now with math guru brother Akil Parker. And Howard is calling from L.A., has a question for you, Akil, he's on line one. Good morning, Howard. Oh, good morning. I just have a comment. I think what happened with me in math was the fact that I grew up, and I had a lot of math in school, and I knew what I was doing. It started with the metric system, remember that? I don't understand what was going on. I was in the medical field. I do it all the time. But I would say a lot of times people had to grow into it. That's what happened with me. And when I was in uh, training for entry tech, people thought I was a genius because I had all this math at an early age, but it caught up with me. I understood it. And uh, if I had some conduct on my GI Bill, I wanted to go back to school just to major in math, just, just for the hell of it. And math science is a very important subject, but uh, sometimes you have to grow into it. Because when you take it a young, you don't understand it. And I would say that life taught me, man, how to apply it. That's very important as well. All right. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for that comment. Brother Akil, how can we get copies of your book? How can we reach you? Because this is an issue, not just mathematics, but, you know, the education system in this country, as, as we, we, you know, we talked about, it's, it's not for us. Instead of complaining about the school board and, you know, for our, our listeners in Baltimore, they go up on North Avenue and complain about the school or the teachers are doing all the, all the superintendent schools or, 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 or are not doing and why the children are failing. They should, they should be more proactive. Instead of complaining, let's be proactive. Let's, let's, let's embrace what you're teaching. Your thoughts? Uh, yes. I think, uh, again, like I, like I said earlier, I think we have to embrace the fact that, you know, that there's nothing coincidental or accidental. Um, the school system, whether it's in Baltimore, whether it's in Philly, where I'm based, uh, D.C., anywhere in the country, um, by design, it, it functions the way it functions. Um, I mean, it's it's been... Uh, black children have been performing in essentially the same uh, way and at this, to the same level uh, for many, many years. And if it was really a problem, this would have been changed a long time ago. So I definitely think that we have to change our approach. Um, the system's, you know, not going to change. We have to start to think about ways to become, take a more independent, self-reliant, more nationalistic, you know, um, black nationalistic approach, you know, from the time that, you know, Kwanzaa was developed. That was the mindset. You know, institutions and rituals such as Kwanzaa were developed because of a certain mindset and a belief that we had to do for self. Um, so I think that we have to, you know, take, you know, education, you know, and we have to approach education in that way and, and not just, like I said, not just talk about it, but we got to actually do it. And, you know, that's, what, that's you know, reflect, uh, reflections that I made. I realized that I had to just stop just talking about this and actually do something about it. So that's why, you know, all this math, volume one, notice it's only volume one. Volume two is coming in, in uh, 2024. Um, and volume three after that as well. Um, I already have the outlines for those books. But, um, you know, we got we to gotta provide resources. You know, a lot of people, such as myself and in my position, um, that have the, I guess you would say, privilege of being knowledgeable about certain subject areas. Oftentimes we have a tendency to um, sit on a high and kind of talk down to the community and tell people what they should do but we don't really offer tangible resources. 
so that they can actually do what we are prescribing for them to do. So that's why How to Use All This Man Volume 1 is here. It's an actual book. Um, like I said, you can grab it off of Amazon. Um, just type in either my name, Akil Parker, or How to Use All This Math Volume 1. Um, it'll pop up. But also, you know, the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is the next best alternative to um, private tutoring that we also offer. Um, next, The next best thing to that, because the pre-recorded videos, like I said, we go from arithmetic all the way up to calculus one. Um, but I definitely I definitely want us to, you know, again, just be, become more self-reliant and start to take more responsibility for the education of our children. And instead of, as parents, I think instead of us thinking that good parenting means that we are supplementing what the teach what the math teacher is doing in school, we got to flip flip the script and realize that the math teacher in the school needs to be supplementing what we're doing for our children. So we got to yeah. we got to shift our orientation. We definitely have to shift our orientation and become much more proactive. And we got we and we got to stand up to the bully. You know, you got to stand up to the bully. So if you if you grew up feeling some type of way about math and you had negative experiences in math class, which do no fault of your own, you probably had some, you know, um, some ineffective instructional practices. You probably had some poorly trained teachers because that happens. You know, it happens quite often. Um, that's normal. But we got to at some point, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're a person you grew up in, like, you know, your parents might have, you know, messed you up because, you know, they didn't, they weren't as good at parenting, you know, so you got to heal from that. But at some point when you become an adult, you got to take ownership for your own healing and your own, you know, repairing. And, you know, so we got to do that with our own math, um, our, and, you know, our, our engagement with mathematics so that our children and our grandchildren, nieces and nephews and whatnot, they can be able to have a better experience with mathematics and develop the critical thinking ability. Because it's not just about being in the classroom and being able to answer questions. It ain't just about that. Math is much deeper than that. Math is really about problem solving, analytical reasoning, and critical thinking ability. And with that, we can be able to, you know, solve our problems. And a lot of times, people can't. People have problems in their lives that persist only because they don't know how to solve those problems. Many, in many cases, they don't even know how to identify the problems. So you can't even identify a problem. You, you, you think it's cool, but no, that's actually a problem. Right. Um, and then you have a step-by-step process or a method, methodology to solve the problem. Then you're just stuck with the problem. So that's what math really does. Math enables you, while you're sitting there doing the you know, so-called Pythagorean theorem or doing the quadratic formula or doing this, that, or the third, or whatever formula you want, we got to realize that you're being, your brain is being trained in terms of how to identify problems and then proceed to solve problems in a systematic manner. And that could be a problem with your significant other, a loved one, a supervisor at your job, somebody in traffic that's being right. a jerk, doing crazy. Like, it don't matter what the problem is. That's what math is meant to train us to do. And thank you for sharing that with us, Brother Akil. And you, you mentioned critical thinking, but thank you for sharing that with us. And, and uh, we, we'll have you back because we haven't even scratched the surface because uh, there's a lot of math phobia in our community. But thank you for sharing that with us this morning. You're quite welcome. Quite welcome. All right. His brother Akil Parker. And again, the book is called All This Math. Eight after the top of the hour. Speaking about critical thinking, he mentioned that twice. I guess he knew that Dr. David Horn was coming on. Dr. Horn, good morning. Habarigani. Habarigani, uh, um, um, Carl, how are you doing? And how how is your entire audience of thinking people? Uh, Which, it's a great day to be. It's a great day to be here. It certainly is, and, and and you as an educator, the discussion we started off, I know we, we would talk about some other issues, but i got to ask you about education, you know, because the system doesn't seem to be working for us. Why is that? Is that deliberate? Is it by accident, or they just don't care about us? And since we know it's not working for us, what should we be doing, Dr. Horn? Um, um, your previous guest 
gave some excellent um, uh, suggestions, and I think we need to seriously think about them. The part of the part of the reason the public school system does not always seem to be working in our favor is that it was not designed to work in our favor. The um, there are some great great teachers out there, people who have spent their lives trying to educate black folk, educate other folk to get us to move on the right track, to get us to be inventive, to get us to, you know, to think critically, to think about, you know, more than just our emotional um, uh, relationship at any given time. There are some absolutely magnificent teachers that we've had but the uh they have been struggling to teach us within a system that is simply not designed for us and even uh it had not, had not even made a whole lot of accommodations to incorporate us uh the um education being the major vehicle, the major highway uh, for being able to train young people to understand what their parents and what the elders have already laid out, and then to take that information, incorporate it, and build on top of that. It's like you are trying to construct a great building and you need to know what was done before you arrived. You need to know who had mixed the cement or whatever adherent is being used. You need to be able to understand the architectural designs that were already there before you showed up, then add your piece to it and continue to build. Teachers are crucial. The system is not designed for us. We have to make it work in spite of, not 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 hope that it's going to work because there's something in it for us. So I agree with the brother who was on that we need to receive, you know, the initiative for our own education. The Let's talk about when we look at Africa, when we look at, you know, the splendid area of the world that Africa represents. One of the major problems in Africa is still the control of African education by the former colonial patterns of organization. In other words, the, they set up an educational system that was aimed at training African students to be service people, to work in the service of Europeans. Africa has still not completely overthrown that system. It has not built its own system in spite of uh, what we have done to move forward in terms of anti-colonialism. The African educational system still needs to be completely reworked. In this country, we need to find ways of doing 
the same thing where you have African folk, where you have African Americans, those from the um, Caribbean, etc. We have to rework education to be able to train African folk to bring out the very best that's in us. In the midst of slavery, you know, we created great architects. We built the White House twice. You know, we built, you know, most of those southern plantations. You know, we always found ways of becoming educationally sound in spite of people trying to make sure we never did. Right. And hold that thought right there, Doc. we got to take a short break. When we come back, let's get into politics. Uh, you know, what we really want to talk about a black political party since this is Kuja Jakalia, self-determination. I just want to figure out how you think that would work for us right now as we approach the, the elections coming next next November. 14 minutes okay. after the top of the hour family, our guest is Dr. David Horn. Dr. Horn is one of our top Pan-African scholars. He's taught critical thinking in college, also a reparationist. You want to join the conversation? 800 456 Zero seventy eight seven six. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. David Horn. Dr. Horn, as I mentioned, is one of our top Pan-African scholars. He's also a reparations. He's a, talk, a college professor. He taught critical thinking. A lot of times, that's why we need a person in the form of Dr. Horn to teach us how to be critical thinkers. But anyway, today being Kuja Chagalia, self-determination, Dr. Horn, is, it, is this the opportune time for us now? Because, you know, many of us, politically speaking, think that neither party really represents us or has our concerns at the top of their list. Is this an opportune time for us to create our own black political party? How do you see it? That is a very interesting question, Carl. The, um, the, Republican, the Republican Party, in all likelihood, will have shot its own foot off by the end of the uh, 2024 election cycle. Uh, A lot of Congress people who are Republicans will no longer be in office, et cetera, et cetera. It is a very important issue that you raised about whether it it is finally time for black folk to affirmatively establish their own political party or at least a political party that focuses on black issues. It It might be that more than just an all black political party, a party that is aimed at, uh, uh, resolving, working on, uh, building, uh, so liberation, for African folk in in the United States. Um, Yeah, I think this is the time. I think we need to have a couple of think tanks, at least a couple, maybe more, in the country to work out uh, the details, to work out a, a, a proper strategy to establish a black political party. 
uh, black-oriented political party, yeah, I think it is time to do this call. Should we have a black summit like we had back in, in Gary? I think it was in 72 we had this summit in Gary where all the black leaders came together and, you know, and then yeah. that... And then what happened after that? We had a lot of black mayors were elected. Do do we need another summit like that to come up with a plan, a technique, how we can get? Because obviously, just getting a black person in office doesn't change the situation for us as we saw back then. We got more black elected officials today, and we still haven't. Our situation still hasn't improved. So, what's the issue? How do we how do we approach it? Well, well our situation has improved. It just has not gotten up to the level that that it should. We went from uh, twenty black elected officials in 1972 to now over 6,500 black elected officials across the country. Uh, we, but being able to go beyond people looking black skin folk who will then have our best interests at heart, uh, in terms of actually having to face money, uh, uh, personnel, uh, decision-making for black folk. That's been, you know, we have not gotten to that level yet, And but I agree with you, Carl, that it's time for us to sit down, discuss, argue it out, but no, not at one big summit. We're not ready for a big summit yet. We need to have some small uh, state or regional meetings first. We need a series of black think tanks to work this out. Yeah, but we need to we need to really start working on it. We need to really start moving on this issue. Another issue on the table, Dr. Horn, is the young people. The young people are not enthused with either of the uh, political candidates or potential uh, presidential political candidates that are out there. What can they do to bring these young people back into the fold? <laughs> Any political party has to be able to deliver um, not favors, but progress for its membership. Any political party needs to be able to not only get candidates elected, but you need to get people elected who are going to make some decisions that will benefit the community, not just benefit you and your friends. So we need to have a different orientation, a different logical orientation toward politics, that politics is not just a game of who's in charge, who's on top, who has access to the money and resources, and who can uh, push everybody else around. Politics cannot just be about that. Politics has to be much more about how do we make decisions that would benefit a larger community? How do we make sure every community that we are involved in has clean drinking water, has electricity that will survive, you know, a, a rainstorm or a tornado or a hurricane? We need to have people in charge who think about how to help the community. So, again, all of that should come out of the think tank. Skin color alone will not do it because, again, as you well know, uh, all um, skin folks ain't kin folks. So we need to make sure that we talk to each other and work out something cleaner and more logical than that. 
Right. Uh, 27 at the top there. And Dr. Horn, if we have this powwow, if you will, if we have this sit down and this conference and, and, and try to flesh out some of the issues in our community, series, what would you say? A series, a series of... Uh, a series, powwows, okay. What would you say is, is, is would, would you say with the major t- two or three issues in the black community that need to be addressed? Um, reparations for one. And how do we keep following through with what Marcus Garvey said? Um, getting black folks to care about and work for the progress of black folks. How do we band together with all of the talent and the skill and the ingenuity that we have and work more for ourselves as opposed to working for other people against ourselves? There are, way, there are ways to to lay that out. I mean, it, you know, again, if you want to build a house, you want to make sure that you bring an architect to the project who's interested in that project, not just somebody who who knows how to build a building and uh, is interested in working, but not necessarily working on the project that you want, uh, that you need. So that's why we need to have these series of meetings, different parts of the country until we can work out a common plan. Uh, are all our issues the same or issues in California different, say, from, from what's going on in Baltimore or Louisiana or Texas? Uh, no, um, except for the weather, all of our issues are basically the same. We All of us have trouble um, in all of our communities with getting proper health care for black women on a regular basis. We have a we have trouble getting proper health care for our children. We all have trouble with uh, school systems that tend to uh, kick us out rather than to keep us in, school systems that tend to try to train us to be uh, 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 good workers and quiet people as opposed to instructing us about how to actually do great things, how to build uh, spaceships, how to build, uh, you know, uh, the uh, another pyramid, you know, how to build things that the world needs. So, no, we, we don't all have the same specific issues in every community, but black people are affected in this country because they're black, first and foremost. So we need to have uh, powwows, we need to have um, um, uh, Mayotte meetings that can lay out mathematical, logical plans to move us to higher ground. We Too, too many of us on the same plane. We're not, not, not the same issues always, but we're on the same plane. We all get, we all get treated badly because we're black. Right. Hold that thought right there. 29 away from the top there. Bob's joining us. He's calling from Buffalo. He's on line one. Good morning, Bob. Yes, good day, sirs. Um, always appreciate the information. Thank you for the brother who's talking to Matt. That opened my eyes, and I'm definitely a lifelong learner and purport, uh, purport, purport that, support that. Oh, yeah. My question good in morning, terms of politics. Good morning, sir. My question in terms of politics is uh, most of us think of politics as something we do on election day. And as as uh, 
you talk about Kwanzaa 365, politics 365. How can we expand our view of politics as something that we do every day uh, and politics being the gaining, maintaining, and use of power and get beyond the uh, idea that politics is, is just about electoral politics, that there are other aspects to politics? Uh, good question. The It goes back to the initial start of our discussions this morning about education. We have to, in school and in our, you know, our churches and in our um, uh, neighborhood groups, we need to start going back to uh, the teaching our youth to do things that make sense for our communities. You know, you don't need to build a uh, a a uh, big toboggan, a big uh, uh, snow snowmobile in places where you just got sunshine all the time. So what we are talking about is laying out a process of training young people that politics, like you said, is about power, but it's also about access. It's also about um, uh, being able to make decisions about distributing the resources in any community to the people who live in that in that community. We um, it's not just about individual power. It is about dis- uh, distribution. It's about dis- political distribution. If there's money to be spent for education, we have to make sure that we are in the decision-making process to get money sent to places where there are predominantly predominantly black students who need access to the money, to the buildings, to the uh, musical instruments, to the uh, sporting goods, all of this stuff. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about we are not being considered enough when decisions are being made in the distribution of the resources that our communities need. That's politics. politics, And hold on, I thought right there, Dr. Horner. And Bob, I thank you for your phone call. Thank you for your question as well. We've got to take a short break here and check the traffic and weather in our cities, pardon me family and we come back though marvin in baltimore has a question for you it's uh, 26 minutes away from the top there i'll be back in four minutes though with your phone calls right here in baltimore on 1010 wolb and also in the dmv on fm 95.9 and am 1450 wol where information is power Good morning, family. 19 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. David Horn. Dr. Horn is a, one of our top scholars. He's a Pan-African scholar, also a reparationist as well. He used to teach critical thinking in college, at the college level. And a lot of our problems, a lot of the problems that we have in our community, we need to have, have you know, become critical thinkers to figure it out. And this is why we have him on so frequently. Before we go back to him, though, i got a bunch of folks got questions for him. I uh, just want to remind you tomorrow, of, of course, as we mentioned her, her, earlier, that uh, today's Kuchi Jagalia, 
self-determination, second day of Kwanzaa. Well, Kwanzaa creator Dr. Milana Karenga will join us tomorrow morning. Also, D.C. activist Al-Malik Farrakhan from the Ceasefire, Don't Smoke the Brothers and Sisters, will also be here. They've been fighting crime in the district for quite some time. They'll tell you about their latest venture. So, if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, run FM. 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, let's go some calls for Dr. Horn. Marvin is up first. He's on line two. He's calling from Baltimore. Marvin, good morning. You're on with Dr. Horn. Hey, first of all, good morning. How y'all doing, man? Good morning, uh, brother. How you doing? Uh, okay. One thing what I wanted to say is that I don't really believe that we've been hated because we're black. I believe we've been hated because simply... Every piece of item, everything that you touch in this world today, most of the majority of times white people own it or they control it. They making it. We watching them. We ain't doing nothing about how to make anything for ourselves. We just consistently actually taking their product and feel as though that we own that and we can control it. And when they say no, we get mad. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's not about mm-hmm. It's, it's just simply not about we being hated because of that. I think we've been hated because we stand still as people and we don't want to do anything but just accept everything, everybody bringing everybody else's product and try to use it when you can't use you get no, it's, it's not good. We got to get in there and, and combine and start producing like they produce and then you make an earn some respect. You see what I'm saying? That's what it's all about. It ain't yeah. about nothing else. All right, uh, Marvin, let's give him a chance to respond. Thank you for your phone call. Dr. Horn? Oh, that's an interesting observation. The, uh, the, we have been taught in this society, they have been taught in Africa, they've been taught in different parts of the world that those who conquer, those who take charge, set the agenda for everybody else. Everybody else has to respond while those who conquer are the ones who set the agenda that we have to respond to. Now, we uh, African-Americans in this country and in other parts of the world have been brilliant about creating agency, uh, um, um, things that people use all the time. You know, the whole idea about the so-called cotton gin, which help to revolutionize, um, you know, cotton production in in the country. Cotton being the dominant economic or capitalist product created in this country that helped this country to become rich. Uh, we have been taught over and over again that only white people could have created that device, and that is basically not true. African Americans have been absolutely outstanding at inventing organizing and creating things that help helped us get through crazy times. We have not always been in positions to take advantage of what we have created. We have been trained to think that whatever we come up with has to be owned by somebody else. It does not have to be owned by them. We need to change the mathematics, we need to change the logic of the situation so that he or she who does the creation should be he or she who owns that creation and builds 
on that creation. It, this is about changing the educational relationship, my brother. You, you're right that a lot of us don't always seem to be taking advantage of what we bring to the table. We always seem to be looking for how can we tie our fortunes to what somebody else has brought. We always seem to be looking for how we can fit into somebody else's mathematical arrangement. We need to look more for what we bring to the table, what we invent, what we organize, what we self-determine. And we can, we can change that. Remember, for example, most of us have been trained in this country to believe that uh, Egyptian uh, society you know the uh you know which included the pyramids and and the uh, great architectural um um arrangements in the world that essentially the brilliance of the egyptian societies was so big that we have to believe that martians or somebody from outer space came and showed us how to do it that Africans could not have done that on their own. Uh, the there's a movie called The Great Pyramid, K twenty nineteen. If you can get a chance to see that on your uh, on your device, what it does is is look at the building of the pyramids and the great stone edifices in that part of the world and show that it was African folk who solved the problems of the building. They didn't have to move five-ton stones up a 10-mile stretch to be able to build the pyramids. They created the stones that they needed right at the point that they needed them. They did the mathematical calculations. They did the the architectural designs so that they built, they poured the stone, they poured the concrete where they needed to pour that so that they were able to create whatever monuments, whatever buildings that they needed. What we are saying is we have to change what we're after, change the mathematical calculation, change the logic. What what is it that we are trying to achieve? We are trying to achieve self-determination for African folk. How do we formulate the plans and implement the designs to get what we need out of this society as opposed to simply following what somebody else has set up for us? And we can do that, but we have to change orientation. Well, let me jump in here, Dr. Horner, because my response would be the fact is I think we don't know who we are. We are special people. You know, they, they're, they're fighting against us because they know what we can do. Just you mentioned the cotton gin, all the stuff that we created, we made. And, and right. that's what we know. We don't know the ones that they stole from us, the patents that they stole from our from our ancestors. And yet still we survive. And, and we were going through slavery, Jim Crow. They, we, they still got a, a de facto Jim Crow going on right now. All the subtleties yeah, of racism. Do. And yet we still we're still here. We're still surviving. They know that. That's why they're after us, but we just don't know it ourselves. Your thoughts? Control of the education of your children 
is the key to self-determination. We don't control enough of what our children are taught. We not only are not on the school boards, we are not in the uh, uh, ownership of the private schools. We are not in charge of our own education for our children. And lacking that, we are stuck with the product that they have wanted us to have. That's where the that's where the power is. The power is in who educates the children. I'm saying retake control of our own education. Partially, it was better when they refused to let us go to school with them. Uh, the advantage of that was fine. We were able to f- formulate our own self-determinative plans. Uh, basically, being in the same classroom with whites did not always make things better. So we need to retake control of our own education, education of our children. That's, gotcha. That, that's the first building block we need to deal with. All right. Nine away from the top. Line three, Charles is calling. She's in Baltimore. Good morning, Charles. Doing today, I was wondering, um, wondering where the starting point is, because starting point, because um, we need to know what the immediate individual solution is, where I can start and finish today, because we're in critical condition and we need to save ourselves within 24 hours. So we need a definite immediate solution. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, so you want an emergency solution to what we have to work with right now. Um, now I don't know whether me or any of the other scholars can give you a definitive answer to that question. That's a hell of a question there. We, I would, I would tend to think we need to be focused on what can we do for the next phase, what can we do for the two or three-year-olds who will then be seven or eight or nine, ten-year-olds by the time they get to that level, what we have done for them. I don't know whether we can do much more in our emergency other than try to just simply survive it, that we are being, you know, we have been attacked by a holocaust of um, anti-black sentiment in this country and y'all need to stop complaining just accept what y'all got that you were the luckiest black folk on the planet y'all need to accept that and stop whining about you want more you want more we need to control black education in this country control of black education control of the education of, of youth of black youth will lead us to black political authority Right. Hold that thought right there, Doc. I'll let you expound on that when we come back. We've got to take a quick break. And Ty and Melvin's got questions for you as well. Folks, you too can join this conversation with Dr. David Horn. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We're six away from the top there. I will take your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.
Hello, Rangani family. This is the second day of Kwanzaa Kujichagalia, self-determination. Our guest is Dr. David Horn. Dr. Horn is one of our Pan-African scholars, one of our top scholars. He's a reparationist, and also he, he taught critical thinking in college. And a lot of issues that we have, we need someone who can teach us how to become critical thinkers. Because sometimes the issues that face us, we think they're just, you know, plain black and white. is just either or. No, that's how, that's how the system of racism and white supremacy works. They try to make you think, and many of us... You know, we'll, somebody will tell us something. We'll run with it. We don't even we don't even investigate it or ask questions. You know, during the break, Dr. Horn tweeted said uh, that the, the, the major issues between us, we need to come together. We're always fighting each other. We're not fighting the oppressor. Before I take a call, I just want you to respond to that tweet. Uh, yeah, well, we, we are trained. We are taught to fight each other. We are taught away from unity and community. We are taught the opposite because as long as we stay uh in each other's faces as long as we hate on each other and fight each other then we are not focusing on them and so no that's all part of the educational process in this country they train us to fight each other to see each other as enemies as opposed to uh focusing any energy on uh, so so why is, well, but let me jump in and ask you this then. So why is it so difficult for us to figure that out? <laughs> now, that's a whole other issue. Why <laughs> is it so difficult for us to figure that out? <laughs> the, uh, let me say it this way. Uh, when, when I was uh, coming up as a, as a young pup, what we had in our community were rites of passage programs, you know, where... Um, we would be taught at different at different ages by different parts of the community things that we could use to either help that community or help whatever other black community we were going to move to so that you know we went through the uh learning how to live off the land you know learning what what uh plants and and um and uh things in the garden to stay away from and what you can use to survive but again, rights of passage programs uh, called those worked in the past and they can work again. We have to reinvent them and redesign them in, in all the communities that black folk live in. Rights of passage programs to get our children to understand their relationship to their parents and to, the, uh, and to their larger community and to identify things that each of them can do to help build our community. It may be small, it may be large, but we have to be taught to think about refurbishing ourselves, rebuilding ourselves. Yeah. Right All now, right. we're not taught that. Three after the top of the hour, Dr. Horn. Ty's calling from Washington, D.C.'s on line one. Good morning, Ty. Hi. Good morning, and thank you for convening this. Um, Dr. Nelson and Dr. Horn. Um, <laughs> master teachers. I've been listening to y'all for a long time. But hey, so what I wanted to um, ask uh, Dr. Horn is you're talking about um, like these think tanks. And it sounds like you're talking about like regional think tanks. And I wanted yeah. to get an idea like who do you think the people should be that are on these think tanks, you know, in terms of, because I think in some ways that's almost as important as the issues that we bring up is who those people are. And I'm just going to say one more thing, because I know that, um, I mean, I think I'm pretty, 
intelligent, educated, but I, you know, I, I, but I'm mainly somebody who's on the ground, right? And a lot of times, people who work on the ground, their thoughts and ideas and methods don't always get through to the people who are, you know, maybe, you know, more in the academic realm or the scholarly realm. So but, I just want to ask who you but, but you are the most important. Those on the ground, those in the trenches are the most important. Not not okay, the ones so then, always claiming the glory. The right, I wanted to tip from you then as to, as to how we get that across the folks. Um, the simple, logical answer to your question is you start with the one or two people that you know that you've seen their work, you've seen their their activity, and you've seen whether they are sincere in what they're doing, whether they really seem to care about the community, or whether they are just in it for whatever they can get out of it. They're in it for the money, they're in it for the glory, they're in it for the, for the uh, whatever TikTok thing that they can get. You, you start with one or two or three folk like that that you watch work, you talk to them about getting something started, about getting a rights of passage program or a community movement builders program. You talk to them about, hey, you know what? You want to start getting this started? Again, you start with people you already have some experience with, and you and you expand from there. Don't start with people because they got a reputation. Don't start with people who basically uh, uh, come to you with you know, um, I'm the greatest, or I've already made all this money playing football or basketball. I'm a star. I'm a rapper. Fame is not what we're looking for. You're looking for workers. You're looking for people who are willing to put their shoulder to the task and start creating the programs that will train our youth to care about the black community. They, again, the, yeah, the education program so far has been about how do we identify your smartest youth, train them to only care about us, and snatch them away from you. Uh, mm -hmm. We need to change that. All right. Thanks, Di. Thanks for your call. So could I get All one right. more point in? I'm sorry, real quick. Yeah, go ahead. My man go ahead. talked about the emergency plan. And yeah. And and I think one thing I mean it's not going to solve it's not going to solve all the problems but I guess the neighbors also focused on kind of where I am the idea that exactly. if we could somehow get you know I mean the starting point get everybody off the street and into housing because we got the the resources exist for everybody to be off the street and housed not that they solve all our problems but we got too many of us brothers put them off the street got to get them off there so anyway thank you so much. All right, thanks, Ty. Look, go ahead, Doctor Horn. Look, uh, um, find find the three or four or five folk. You know, so our, our, our fraternity brothers or or um, church brothers, find the folk that you have already worked with on other stuff. Get some get some uh, some some confirmation from them and get something started. Just you four or five. Start it small. You can make it big later. But you can do that because you. We all know people. Eight after the top, the Alice keep rolling. Melvin's in on line two, calling from Baltimore. Good morning, Melvin. You're on with Doctor Horn. Good morning, everyone. 
Um, Good morning, I agree. Bro. I agree. White supremacy has us fighting against each other. I agree. We need to get a handle on the school system. But when I, when I checked, I, I saw people who look like us on the Baltimore City School System, the board, the Baltimore City School Board, who makes the policies. For example, getting rid of industrial trades, something that Baltimore City School children graduate. Uh, everyone is not uh, made for college. They could have an alternative. So You're right. if all if all these people look like us on the Baltimore City School System, not to try to fight, not to, in 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 terms of unity, trying to still have a unified mindset. How do we address? These people, and some of them are like, I said, I graduated from Morgan. I said, about three, about three of them have Morgan State uh, credentials when I look. I said, how do we address this? You, you address it by making sure those other Morgan State graduates know you. You go, you find out where their offices are. You find out how to get in contact with them before they're in the meeting. You let them know who you are and maybe some other people from your community so that you can let them know this is what your community needs. This is what your your group of students needs to, to move forward. If you don't contact them, if they don't have your interest, if they don't have your uh, 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 idea about how to move forward, then they're going to do whatever comes first to them. They're going to deal with whoever is closest to them, whoever is giving them money, whoever is giving them some fame. You have got to get in contact with whatever uh, black constituency is already in office. They need to know you. They need to know you and your community and what y'all need. Uh, That's what other communities do. When there are Latinos in, in office, other Latinos make sure that they get the what they want told to and directed to those Latinos in office. Whites make sure they talk to other white office holders to keep them in check about what they need to be doing for their own white communities. We don't tend to do that. We elect people and then leave them. They expect a certain result from them because they look like us and get mad at them when They don't seem to be making decisions that we think are helping us. We leave them alone out there in the wilderness. We leave them alone out there where uh, other people with more money, with more clout, et cetera, get to them and influence them. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. I appreciate your answer. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Melvin. Uh, But uh, Dr. Horney, you mentioned that too. Once we vote them in, they, they seem to forget about us. Is is that par well, for the court? It, so, so, you know, and the, and the issue with Baltimore, let's let's deal with Baltimore, Doctor One. They don't have a recall issue, so they can't recall them. That you know, they can't. You know, they have to wait till their term is finished, and, and you know, before they can get a chance to vote them out. So, what should they do during the, that period when the person they selected, voted for, is in office and is and is not doing anything for them? So, what should they do at that point? Why don't y'all have a recall process? And if y'all don't have one, y'all need to create one. Uh, go down to the uh, whatever board or whatever uh, entity is in charge of establishing that and get them to set up a a process. 
where the people that you elect, if they're not doing what they should do, you should be able to pull them out of there. Right. Should have a referendum and put it on the ballot, you know, put it referendum. I'm, I'm not sure how it works in, in uh, no, that, Maryland. That, that, that would do it. That yeah. Would just do put it, it. Just, say, just put it on there. But then, you know, they, they have the politicians and, and the people who own the politicians are all going to fight against it. So that's another issue there, too, because it usually comes down who's got more money. And the other folks, they usually have more money than our side, Dr. Horn. So how do we fight that real quick? Well, money is important. Money can buy, you know, you, look, you, every time you see a Trump rally, you see two or three black people up there talking about blacks for Trump. They've been paid. You know, they're not, they're not there because they're really supporting Trump. They're there because they got paid to do it. So money in politics is definitely an issue. However, money does not trump organization. You got five or ten, uh, you know, you got a lot of black sororities and black fraternities in an in and around Baltimore, Washington. Y'all can organize to get almost anybody elected and almost anybody unelected. You can organize to get a referendum put on uh, uh, in, in, in different communities about we can remove uh, those who don't work for the community. You got all these different organizations that are already there that can be reorganize for another purpose that's what i'm saying you know right. you got black fraternity sororities you can do that all right hold that thought right there and speak about money money mike is next he wants to speak with you 14 after the top of the hour got to take a short break and check the traffic and weather for our commuters this morning family you want to join this conversation with dr horn reach out to us at 800-450-7876 your phone calls in four minutes right here in baltimore on 1010 wolb also in the dmv we're on fm 95.9 and am 1450 wol or information is power and good morning, family. 21 after the top of the hour and with our guest, Dr. David Horn. Dr. Horn is one of our top Pan-African scholars. He's also a reparationist. Uh, and we were having a, uh, just chopping it up this morning, talking about politics. You want to join in and reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Dr. Horn, Money Mike wants to speak to you. He's on line three. Good morning, Money Mike. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Dr. Horn. Hey, brother. How are you doing? All right. All right. I got a couple questions for you. If we make up 16 to 17% of this nation's population, how do we, how can we support a, a, a black political party when 75% of us don't vote, aren't involved in the political process, aren't educated in the political process? That's question number one. Number two is how do we expect to run politics when we don't want to support politics with our money? Now, everybody knows, at least most of the people I know and you know, that if you don't understand and respect money, you can't get anywhere in politics. We don't rent, lease, or, or own our politicians. So they can be coerced, corrupted with the, with the admin of money. So I don't see that playing out. And next, uh, as far as our education system goes, people pay for what's important to them. And I don't see, I, I love my black people, but I don't see them, just like the guy who spoke before, the, the math guy, if the parents just send their kids to school, if they're not involved, and let's look at the mass majority of black people, you know, they, they didn't benefit from education. And I'm talking about college or trade school or anything after school. The reason why they didn't ensue proper uh, a higher education is because they didn't like to read. They couldn't read. They can't do math. 
And I'm not bashing black people. I'm just telling the truth because I taught math myself. So if you don't get it, you don't benefit from it. You don't want to do any more math or any more reading after you get out of high school. Then nobody makes you read or write. Nobody makes you do math. So if we don't get our political and our economic piece together, I don't see us moving forward. How do you think that the, the, the poor whites in America, as far as reparations go, are going to feel about us getting reparations when they're poor and they make up the mass majority of the people? So I, I support reparations. I'm all for it. But I see it as a long time off. It's still it's still going to be a generation or two away. And I'll take your response off there, Doc. All right, thanks, Money Mike. Put a lot on your uh, that, table there, Dr. Holmes. Uh, oh, hey, look here. That was, uh, apparently, you've been preparing that food for a long time, bro. Because <laughs> you, you, yeah, yes, you definitely, uh, you definitely set a, set a full table. Listen, let me, let me say it this way. Um, and again, we were talking about the rights of passage programs. One of the things that black folk used to do a lot more than we do now is to impart in our families a black value system, you know, so that, you know, you, we taught each other how to help each other, how to depend on each other, and then we could go out in the community and do the same thing. Then the education would actually uh, be able to help us focus. But anyway, we need to get back to some kind of black value system. But let me, let me say this. One of the greatest powers on earth is the focused reorganization of unorganized black people toward a common purpose. One of the greatest powers on earth is to simply reorganize, a focused reorganization of who we are, focused reorganization of unorganized black people toward a common purpose. A common purpose, if it's the creation of a black political party, then let that be it. If if it is, how do we make sure that virtually every black family in this country has a decent chance to be to survive and to be successful, then let it be that. But we need to reorganize ourselves, starting from where we are, black fraternities, black sororities, whatever, whatever kind of groupings we're in. We need to reorganize ourselves toward a common purpose. The church used to do that. They don't do it now. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, he hung up. Oh, okay. Okay. But let me jump in here and ask, because I got a tweet question. A tweeter wanted to know, how can we compete? Well, the tweeter just says black people can't compete with the Israeli lobby, APAC. And and I don't know what the tweeter is implying here, because Hill Harper, the, the actor who was running in Michigan, he was offered $100 million, $100 million to run against Rashida yeah. Tlaib in Michigan. She's part of what they call the, the squad. So how can exactly. we compete with, with that kind? And, and for his, and thankfully, he, you know, he exposed them because they do this all the time. And they're going to continue to target. Yeah, they're going to continue to target anybody who they think doesn't say anything that's uh, correct about Israel. So how can we as a black people compete with that kind of money? That's what the tweet is basically saying. Again, we are talking about reorganizing the black community toward a a common purpose. And if we uh, apparently Brother Harper has has, has gotten solid. training, home training, to know which side of the bread 
is butted on for him. So he, he didn't, he didn't, and he's seen money before. So simply taking the money and running was not the option that he took. We can reorganize the black community to be able to make those same kind of decisions, but we got to take it on. We got to do these rights of passage, these uh, community movement, build the programs. Again, we need to go back to them. We need to start training young black folk to think about how do I develop, how do I push the development of the black community? That is a primary purpose for me. That is a primary part of my uh, uh, getting ready for adulthood. How do I push the organization of my own community? We got to train each other to do that. We don't have to look for other communities to come in and train us. We need to train ourselves. And again, we have enough of the people, sororities, fraternities, church groups, you know, uh, already got rights of passage programs floating around. Hopefully you can find some of them and bring them on on the air call to talk about uh, black um, uh, black excellence. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, 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 and programs that train young black people to think excellence, to think how do we move forward and not move forward by ourselves and be out here. You don't want to be, get out in the ocean by your damn self. Even if you know how to swim, you're going to drown. Right. You know, and just one more with, thing on the APAC issue too, uh, Dr. Horn, the money that they use. Because people see that, and I just think about two elected officials in New York City and, and some of the rulings and some of the moves that they are making, you know they're probably being, their palms are being greased because they're not thinking about us. And, but they're, they're elected. They're still in office, and they, they remember the Black Caucus. And, right. and some of our scholars have called them out by name. I won't do that. But how do, how do we combat that? Because they look like us, and, and they, they represent us in, in from our districts. But when, they, when it comes to voting, they're not, they're not on our side. So how do we deal they're with it? We need to get to them before they get to the meeting. Call, we need to call them, text them. We need to go and make an appointment, go, go into their offices, let them know that we are a community that must be addressed, that you cannot go and make decisions without keeping us in your mind. We, one of the things that white folks and, and even Latinos here in, uh, in, in California are doing a lot more than black folk. They are making sure they keep their hands on their politicians. They're making sure that people who get elected, they, uh, the community makes sure they are seen. You know, the community goes into not just the, the public gatherings. They go to their offices. They go and find out where these politicians take lunch. They go and tell them, this is what we need. We tend to elect people and leave them alone and then get, get upset when we see them in the newspaper uh, being accused of having taken a bribe or having, you know, done something crazy. Because we've left them alone. The community cannot leave our elected politicians alone. We need to make sure they understand that you are connected to a black community who needs you to do something positive for that community. We cannot right. let them think they're out there by themselves. Right. We've got some more folks who want to talk to you, Doctor. On 30 after the top there. Sister Fahima's up next. She's on line one calling from D.C. Good morning, Sister Fahima. You're on with Dr. Horn. 
Haveragani Carl, Haveragani Dr. Horn. Um, I wanted to address the gentleman who said that black people can't read and they can't do math. Okay, I graduated from the preeminent Howard University. I have two degrees from Howard University and one from NYU. And I teach, yes, and I teach for the past 20 years at another HBCU. And in this region, this is a college town. We have HBCUs, HBCUs, we have community colleges and private universities, and tens of thousands of black people graduate from college each and every year. To sit here and say black people can't read and black people can't do math, I don't know what black people he's talking about. In one of the classes I teach, I show a video by Chimarangi and Dichie Ngozi called The Danger of a Single Story. Black, okay. There is no one unique black experience. Black There's no one way to be black. You're right. Exactly. Black people are bougie, they're ghetto, they're hip-hop, they're country, they're dirty South, and they are beautiful. And to sit here and say that black people can't read and they can't do math and they don't have a love of education, it is the, it is education that has enabled us to transcend where we were. And those people that couldn't read and write, they sold chicken dinners and cakes and uh, to build schools so that we can become what is beyond their wildest dreams. No, we're not where we should be. And there are some of us that are falling behind. And those of us who have have acquired, acquired and achieved, it is, it is our responsibility to take on and, and pull up those brothers and sisters that are falling behind. But this nonsense about black people can't read and write and do math, maybe the black people you know can't do that, and maybe you should try to, if you can read and write and do math, my brother, perhaps you should try to help them. And that's all I wanted to say. But this is, this is no, ridiculous. These generalizations point. are absolutely absurd. Very good Thank point. you, Sister Fahima. All righty. Uh, thank you, Sister yeah. Fahima. We're coming up on a break, Dr. Horn. We've got to take our last look at the news, traffic, and weather. Jordan in, no in Nova, Northern, uh, Northern Virginia wants to speak to you. She'll join us as well. At 26 away min minutes away from the top, we're back in four minutes with Jordan. Any of your phone calls right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, information is power. And good morning, family. Abarigani to everybody out there. Emoja, that's the response when you know, people say Abarigani to you. That means what's going on. Basically, an emoja means unity. You know, that's what we're trying to achieve. That's part of the one of, one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa. And Kwanzaa creator Dr. Marlana Karenga will be here tomorrow morning. Also, along with DC actress Al Malik Farrakhan. He's part of the group. Uh, they cease fire. They don't smoke the brothers and sisters. That group's been fighting the crime in the, in the DMV for quite some time, for decades now. They're going to be here tomorrow and talk about their latest venture. A uh, guest right now is Dr. David Horn. Dr. Horn is one of our top scholars, a Pan-African scholar and a reparations as well. And Jordan is calling from Northern Virginia on line two. Good morning, Jordan. You're on with Dr. Horn. Habari Ghani. Hi, uh, Mr. Carl Nelson and Dr. Horn. Oh, yeah. Great. Um, my, my question and concern is regarding your statement about the, the black church. Um, 
my question involves why you don't think they're they're as involved as they used to be. And I'm coming from the aspect of I've worked um, with mom's group um, uh-huh. doing volunteer work here in the in the DMV area. Um, I've had, you know, meetings with Congress people, senators. Um, we've done local work with, like, going to Richmond on gun violence. And I have gotten on buses with white churches to go to the annual uh, uh, gun law um, uh, legislation in, in January. It's usually around the, the weekend of um, Martin Luther King's birthday. Okay. I got on a bus with the white church. Okay. They okay. were out there advocating and, and lobbying against, um, you know, the, the, the loose gun laws, if you will, and calling okay. for, you know, tighter, tighter gun restrictions. That was with a white, like I said, a, a white church. And then uh, a second thing that I went to uh, several years later was a conference where there was, um, I believe it was the United Methodist Church. There's different branches, but I was in a room with them, and they were talking about gun violence and how they have, you know, efforts out there to help, you know, stop the, the rampant, um, the gun violence, if you will. And in okay. that program, in that program, sir, I stated right there in front of them, like, y'all are out here, like, in the mix advocating. And I said, and all, of, all I know when I was in a black church was we were there at the end of the, at the, end of the, 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 the result of gun violence, meaning prison ministry. We have all these huge prison ministries. Instead, instead of getting in front of it. And with that being said, um, I've, I've had this, like, brainchild of, of why can't the big mega churches adopt the smaller churches that are placed in the inner cities? And that's how they can be on the ground, be on the ground, and help build up what you just stated about rites of passages. Um, a lot of colleges are in the inner cities. We could have, right. you know, the, the church buses coming to help, you know, with those after-school programs right in the churches. And that's how that could build out the community. Do you have any thoughts as to why black churches are afraid uh, to lose their 501, whatever, C3s, or is it just a lack, a lack of... It's C4, but yeah. The, the, the from your... Um, presentation my sister you are right on it you sound like somebody who is ready to be called into a uh, black think tank session to lay out some steps forward you know you you sound like you are ready to actually get some stuff done it um i can't speak for the whole black church i can't speak for why um the uh, church, the black church itself, does not seem to be as active or as effective as it used to be. When I was growing up, not only were we in church, the church basically helped to teach us how to be 
decent human beings, how, how to not be about going out to hurt somebody, but how to be a builder, how to make sure that my community uh, got some benefit from whatever uh, talents I had and how do we how do we move forward? How do we get more more black students into successful schools? But anyway, you sound like you are in that kind of mode that you want to get some stuff done. You sound exactly like the person who should be contacted about getting into a black think tank to decide whether we need to get a black political party or whether we need to still concentrate on the smaller areas like making sure the people we do elect pay attention to the communities that elected them. You sound like you need to be right there and formulate some uh, some plans to move forward, my sister. So I thank you for coming on and talking about that. You are you are the personification of Kujajagulia, of self-determination. I love it. All right. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for your call. Uh, it's uh, 14 away from the top. I got a tweet from Big West, and Big, Big West kind of is saying what Sister Fahima was saying about some of the calls. It says where people are thinking negative. And, I, I, and my question to you, those, those negative thinkers, those negative folks that we have in our community, have they been programmed to be negative, or is it, is it, is it just sort of organic? They just go through life, and just, everything is they're on, on the pessimistic side of everything they see. How do you see it? Um, while I don't know them personally, so I can't make that judgment, I can say that, um, given what we've heard this morning, called that they have been, um, uh, trained or programmed to think negative about what we have done or what we can do. We have to train each other to see it another way. You know, the, uh, I, I agree with sister. Uh, Pahima, who came on and said, you know, we, we, we don't need to deal with faulty generalizations about black folk. What we do need to deal with is being specific, being, you know, hey, I'm, I'm ready. Let me go and talk to two or three or four other people in my sorority, in my fraternity, in my church, in my, in my neighborhood, in my school, uh, whatever. Let me talk to two or three other people who are ready to make some change. And let's start talking about building a rights of passage or a community movement builders program. Let's talk about doing that ourselves and get this done. And that might lead to eventually the creation of a black political party. But we need to start and build toward that. So you've had some good um, uh, guests on this morning call who basically laid out some of the breadcrumbs that we need to pull together and move forward. This has really a, been a good discussion about self-determination. Yeah. Well, you know, it, on the other hand, too, uh, Dr. Horn, do you think we should just really recognize not everybody wants to be free? We can't help everybody. We, some of them, some of our brothers and sisters, we're going to have to leave behind or just not interact with them so that we, we that virus doesn't at, at, get, we catch that virus of negativity uh, 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 attached to us. Your thoughts? Nine times out of ten, logically speaking, yeah, some people will have to be uh, left behind because they're not ready for the change when it comes. 
but uh, we should not let that stop us and slow us down. For those who already could do the planning and the thinking and the and the and the calculations that move us from point A to point Z, they need to get together. Whether it's two, three, four, five, ten. In 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 the area of the country where you are, Carl, you are already there with all kinds of black people who, in all kinds of organizations, all kinds of sororities and fraternities, or uh, you know, uh, business clubs, folk who really want to get us beyond where we are now, either toward a black political party or or toward a much more successful black community. You start with two or three or four people. You go ahead and start organizing just within yourselves, and then you build from there. You make sure you don't let there be any black politicians who are elected that you don't have some contact with, that you don't know when they're in the office, when you don't know how to let them know what your community wants. We don't, don't let any more black politicians get thrown off by themselves. We have to keep in contact with the people that we put in office who are supposed to help us. They got to know what we want in order for them to help us. So we got to tell them that. Yeah. All right. Ten away from the top of air, Dr. Horn. Jay's calling from Alexandra and Virginia. Jay on line one. Good morning, Jay. You're on with Dr. Horn. Yeah, this is Trey. How you doing, uh, Dr. Horn? And uh, good, my brother. How you doing? Fine, thank you. I just wanted to call to on this second day of Kwanzaa to wish Sister Fahima a happy, happy birthday. She's always coming with hard-hitting facts, the things that make you go, hmm, as, as our senior hall used to say. So we should honor yeah, I like that. We should honor our sisters and, uh, you know, just let her know that we appreciate her so much for her input. All righty. Thank you. Sister Fahima tried to sneak that one by us. Huh? Happy birthday, Sister Fahima. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely happy birthday. Yeah, she tried to sneak that one by us, Dr. Horn. But Dr. Horn, I got a, lot, a tweet for you here, and thanks for calling it. Nine away from the top. The tweeter says, unfortunately, there's no money in fighting for black people. It's safer to be inclusive and go along to get along. Black men, you're on your own. Wow, I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> your thoughts, Dr. Horn? No, no, uh, they, um, no, there's money in any fight. Uh, Byron Allen basically could have gone off on his own, just kept his money to himself, but he is still uh, about the business of uh, uh, rewarding and pushing and uh, identifying black folk who are building, black folk who are trying to get some stuff done in the, uh, in, in the community. And look at Oprah's uh, school in South Africa, you know, where she is now, you know, uh, uh, graduating all of these beautiful children who are ready to move their continent forward. They are, you know, we, we do some decent things in the community. We just need to reorient ourselves so that more of us are doing more things. Right. And, and let me just throw this in before I leave, because you mentioned Byron the last time I talked to him. It was not there. It was just a private conversation. And he's wondering what, what our people think about him. And he says, oh, what they talk about? That I'm married to a white woman? Is that all? Is that the best they got? They understand I'm trying to work for them, even though I'm married to a white woman? Yeah, I said, yeah, there was a lot of pushback on that. Because, you know, some people just write him off totally. 
because of uh, that. Yeah, once yeah, yeah, once they saw the blonde woman, yeah, I saw, yeah, I saw her. yeah. <laughs> So whatever he's doing, whatever he says, you know, I have the same thing come up when we had a conversation about Harry Belafonte. The same thing that uh, do we discount them or how do we handle them? And he's he's working for us. So I I, I don't know. It's just your personal choice. One One of the logical things that we can do is to identify what accomplishments people who come to the community to say we're trying to help. You know what have you done for us before you come? You know, what the, let me let me let me let me see your 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 resume of of work in the black community, and then let us make a determination about you based on that, not based on uh, who you show up on TV next to. Uh, the you know we've all been around white folks. We've been around all kinds of other folks. Just being around them does not determine what we stand for and how much work we're going to do in the black community. Uh, we've had a bunch of black folk uh, who have been successful, but who who decided that they needed a, um, a pale face next to them. That's, you know, that's personal choice. You know, there yeah. have been others who like that Genzel who said, no, I'm not going to do that. The, uh, but that may have nothing to do with, again, our ability to organize our community to move forward. You may only be able to help one person or five people or 10 people. You may not help the 39 million. Help the ones you can because what you are doing is lighting a fire to move us towards self-determination. Right. And with that, we got to run, Dr. Owen. We're flat out of time. I thank you for sharing this information. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy New Year. Stay strong, brother. Right on. Thank you, Carl. Right. And thank you family, to we're, family, we're out of here. Stay strong. You stay strong. Stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.